Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Today we're going down to Maryland, to the Old Line State, hint, hint, and we are visiting with Old Line Spirits. Uh, today to represent Old Line, we've got Mark McLaughlin, uh, co-founder, I should say, of Old Line. So Mark, welcome. Thank you, David. Thank you. Glad to be here. Absolutely. So um, I say Old Line State as a uh, wink, wink. That'll come up a little bit later. But um, first off, you know, Mark, just uh, give us an insight into uh, not not even the distillery's origin story, but kind of who you were before the distillery started. Sure. Yeah. Um, no, th- well, thanks again, David, for having me on. I really appreciate this. And uh, yeah, so uh, I'm one half of the founders of Old Line. My business partner, whom you've met, Arch Watkins, uh, couldn't be here today, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, he, the, our paths are, uh, are similar in that we met in the Navy. Um, so after college, we both joined the Navy, um, and went into aviation. We were weapon systems operators. Think of goose and top gun, if you will. Um, that was uh, the path we took. And, uh, it was a real big, real big part of our lives for think, 10 years for me, even more for Arch. Um, and, uh, you know, we ended up after we got out of the Navy, you know, it was a hard decision for both of us. We both got out for different reasons. Um, but it was a hard thing to say goodbye to. We both, we both loved the Navy, loved our friends, loved flying. But for different reasons, yeah, we ended up pursuing civilian careers. Uh, Arch became an engineer. I became an investment banker uh, for a brief two years for me. And, uh, you know, all along, uh, from way back when I was in the Navy, even before the Navy, I always loved the idea of having my own business. Um, just something about it. Uh, appeals to me, just like it appeals to many other people. And um, I remember thinking a lot about uh, beer, which, you know, I love beer, just like most other people. And, uh, you know, when I was at the bank, not really satisfied with the job and the work I was doing, um, you know, the the beer world seemed kind of interesting, but it it was very clear to me, to many others, that it was pretty much kind of peaking as far as the ability to jump in and really kind of make a name for yourself was getting harder and harder and harder to do. Uh, and I've been, you know, as much as I love beer, I love whiskey as well. And, uh, there seemed to be a much bigger opportunity. So kind of, you know, drew me into this whole business was not only could, you know, we own our own, our own business, but we could, you know, produce something and make something that, um, you know, we love to consume that has kind of a romance and a lure, uh, uh, around it with the whole, you know, put this in a barrel and wait and wait and wait. And finally what comes out hopefully is delicious and there's, there's a lot of factors. It strikes off a lot of checks and a lot of boxes for both me and Arch. So, you know, I don't know when exactly um, we decided to really go for this. Um, but I do know that back in 2014, when I had kind of was fed up with my, my investment banking job, um, I just quit without much more of a plan than distillery sounds fun. You know, so, um, you know, it, it was, uh, it was one of those things where, um, one of the beauty, beautiful things about the Navy, one of the biggest things the Navy gave me was that it forced me to kind of redefine myself over and over again. Um, and, you know, went from being a civilian just out of college, knowing nothing about aviation, to going to flight school, to being an aviator, going from there to, you know, within aviation, there's always this new call. You're always getting put above your head and expected to swim, which uh, in the moment is hard, but it does build a lot of resilience and confidence, I think. And that's really helped me get into this whole business is, um, you know, I, I, I knew nothing about investment banking when I left the Navy, but I went to business school and I figured it out. And 
didn't like it, but figured it out. And then two years into that, well, I'm like, all right, well, I don't know a thing about making whiskey other than I like to drink it. Um, but I've redefined myself a few times already. Then why can't I do it again? So um, I kind of went off on a bunch of different tangents there, but that's really uh, as it pertains to whiskey, kind of who I am in a nutshell is just kind of somebody who loved the idea of it um, and jumped into it. And through a lot of good luck ended up having success. Absolutely. And, uh, no, the tangents are good. I love tangents because that's where the most interesting topics come out of. And uh, one of the things that came to mind as you were saying that was, um, you know, you enjoyed whiskey as much as you enjoyed beer. And I do remember uh, listening to you guys, to you and Archa on Cast Chasers a little over a year ago. Uh, I don't know who it was who said it, but one of you said that good beer makes good whiskey. Uh, that's, that's, I think Arch said that, but I 100% agree. Yeah. Um, the, so one of the things that we'll get into a little bit later uh, is, you know, the like mash bills and um, the, of course, the style of whiskey that you're making. But just to touch on it for a second. So Old Line Spirits is really known and is putting out American single malt. Correct. Uh, so when you say you enjoyed whiskey, in that time, then let's say 2014, mid 2010s, uh, were you drinking more like single malt type products or were you bourbon, rye, mix of all? Yeah, my evolution, uh, it's a good question. My evolution will start off, um, you know, I'm from the Boston area originally, and as you can see, I'm like an Irish cartoon. Uh, so, you know, there's always Jameson and, and, you know, Irish whiskey around the house. And, you know, uh, for when we had, you know, family over, it would come out and, so, you know, it was a lot of my earliest exposure was really to Irish whiskey, um, which I still enjoy very much. Uh, sometimes it's not my favorite style of whiskey today, but I do think there's a lot of merits to it. Uh, but that was my 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 kind of entree to it. And I didn't, you know, as a kid, you know, when you sneak a sip here and there or whatever, um, I didn't like it. I mean, like, but like, I also didn't like beer when I was, you know, my dad would leave the room and I'd sneak a sip of his beer, you know, like I did it because I wanted to, like my dad's doing it. I want to see what that's all about. But I didn't... Um, you know, as a kid, you don't always like those flavors, but what, what was, for me, there was a, a kind of a, an aspirational aspect where, you know, my grandfather, whom I respected more than anybody else in the world, you know, he, he didn't drink very much at all, but when he did drink, it would be typically some Irish whiskey or occasionally a Highland malt. Um, and, you know, I think because I had such an admiration for him, I saw him doing that in, very, in a very responsible, enjoyable way. Like he really enjoyed it. Um, there was that level of, you know, I didn't, as a kid, you know, high school sneaking the sips, it, all I tasted was the burn. Right. But I knew that there was something there. I'm like, well, my grandfather likes it. My father, well, I didn't drink anymore, but he used to like it. My uncles like it. Like there's something there. I want to be like them. And it forced me to keep trying to keep trying it. Eventually, as, as we all know, who drink whiskey, eventually the, the, the parts that are kind of hard, the, the, the harshness or, or it's just the harshness, but the alcohol content, things that can be difficult to a newcomer to whiskey, those kind of fade away and all the amazing, beautiful flavors really come to the forefront. So at any rate, I was more of an Irish whiskey guy as my first exposure. Uh, and then as I went into my, you know, twenties and whatnot, um, you know, I, I was more of a beer guy at the time, but, uh, I, I opened up more to bourbon. Um, and I still to this day, absolutely love bourbon. Um, and then the malts, I really got into single malt scotch, um, more so once we started making American single malt whiskey, which is kind of a backwards thing. And to give that a little bit more texture, um, you know, 
when, when I quit my banking job to start a distillery conceptually, like I know I wanted to do it. I had no other plan. Just, Hey, I'm sick of working 90 hours a week and, and kind of feel stuck in this job. I'm going to quit. Uh, I stumbled across an opportunity to uh, take over apprentice underneath uh, an existing American single malt distiller named Bob Stilnovich out in Washington state. He and I both happened to be at the exact same distilling conference. He was looking to sell his business because his business partner was sick. Uh, they were both in their seventies. Uh, they were veterans, were veterans. So it was, we hit it off. But uh, the reason I bring that up right now is that um, I, 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 my mind said I'm making bourbon and rye. Arch and I both did. Uh, and we, to this day, we love bourbon and love rye, but this American single malt thing fell on our lap uh, because that's what Bob and Jim made. And we, I was skeptical until I went out there and visited and tasted the product and, and just was like, holy smokes, this is fantastic. And I'd say that I'm probably one of the few people who got into American single malt before they got into single malt scotch. Um, and to this day, I mean, I love single malt scotch. I wouldn't say I'm an expert, um, but I certainly do love the category, the, the varied flavors across different regions and whatnot. So at any rate, uh, that's, again, probably over answered your question, but that's kind of my evolution of whiskey drinking so far. And, and now I should take that one step further. The, you can find things from, um, you know, interesting new places like, well, obviously Japan's big, but Israel and Australia. And I, I heard you mention in one of your podcasts, something out of, was it Denmark or, or uh, mm -hmm. somewhere in Scandinavia? It was like, oh, there's great whiskey coming out of everywhere now. And I, I just love that we're in that phase where just, we're, we're discovering more and more. Absolutely. No, there's no such thing as over answering on this podcast uh, to be sure. Yeah. We've had a couple of really great malt producers from the, I heard a term recently that I didn't, I think it was, I think it was new world whiskey, which I don't really like. Um, but what it was referring to was basically whiskey not made in Scotland, the US, Canada, Ireland, or Japan. So not like the, the five big guys. Sure. Um, so while I don't like the term New World Whiskey for that, uh, the point is still very valid. There's, yeah, there's so much stuff coming out. Like, uh, yeah, in Denmark, Stowning's incredible, m &H in Israel, um, Starward, in in australia i'm uh we're scheduling with them right now actually so i saw that doing um, great things i agree and milk and honey i love yeah absolutely yeah. um so yeah i mean that that is a weird kind of way to get into it to mm -hmm. almost have it to have a an asm distillery before really being a um a single malt like a, a mainline single malt drinker yeah i agreed it um you know I, it's yeah. I mean, just kind of this, it's just the way it developed for us. I mean, I still to this day, like if I sit down with a real, and I, you, I, you're, you're, you know, you love single malt scotch, I think, right. I know you don't like the smoke stuff too much. We like to, uh, at least I think that's what, what I've heard, but, um, the, you know, people can do circles around me as far as, you know, real deep in-depth knowledge of a lot of, um, uh, you know, more obscure single malts that I haven't been exposed to, but, uh, in general, you know, um, you know, I, I love what I've tried. I've tried a decent, healthy amounts. And, you know, I, uh, I, have a, I have a range of scotches that I think are just, you know, things I always like to have nearby uh, if I can. So, Absolutely. Yeah. I think for, for me with single malt in general, I've gotten better with the smoky stuff. It, it took me a while. I know some people get their first taste is like an Ardbeg 10 or a Lafroy 12 or 16. And um, I couldn't get into that. I couldn't get into the smoky stuff for a while. I had to go the Speyside Pete, Highland Park, uh, Orkney style Pete, and then slowly move down through Isla. Now, 
So now I can handle Isla stuff. I still don't like anything that has too much iodine or medicinal note to it. I don't sure. like that Band-Aid, you know, bag of balloons kind of rubber note sure. <laughs> in there. <laughs> I know. I, I got that out of a, it was a, a whiskey finished in, um, it wasn't even Isla. It was in Jamaican rum casks recently, um, but it was like heavy Jamaica. So a lot of that dunder weirdness and funk. Yep. And I just smelled it. And all I could smell, I just turned to my wife and said, all I can smell here is this, like when you open that plastic bag of balloons you get from the dollar store. <laughs> and she knew exactly what I meant. So I'm glad you did too. It's, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, the cool thing is, you know, there's something for everybody. But I, I view the, the, the real, to your point, like the real iodine you know, real heavy hitting kind of Isla PD stuff. To me, it's like a kind of a loose comparison is, you know, well, it's, you love it or hate it, I think, or it's, most people are kind of pretty binary on it. And uh, like, think of like, you know, some people like taste cilantro and taste like soap to them. Like my sister-in-law mm-hmm. hates cilantro. She likes everything. She's like, I just saw it, it tastes like I'm eating soap. It's just something about her palate. Just, mm-hmm. and it, it's a common thing. It's like a known thing. I oh, kind yeah. of feel like to a lesser extent, maybe the smoke and the iodine is kind of like, you know, if it, if your palate doesn't like it, you're never, you know, it's just probably never going to get there because it's not for you, uh, which is good because there's a million other things you can't have. In, in yeah. I'm, I'm like that with agave spirits uh, i've been open about it on the podcast i just i don't like agave syrup or um, agave juice to begin with um so yeah. when i say i don't like tequila or mezcal it's well mezcal is a little different because you can use all these different types of agave so i i want to i would try a little more of that but with tequila since you can only use the blue agave the weber agave for the real thing i just don't like it and, and you're right it's just it's a flavor thing has nothing against the quality of the spirit. I just, I just don't like that flavor. Yeah, I was having this conversation the other day at the distillery here with the uh, people we had an event and I was chatting with somebody and we were talking about oh, I forget exactly what I don't know if it was agave, if it was tequila or something. No, actually it was gin. Um, and I know gins. There are we're just gins, as polarizing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. And uh, one of our employees, Charlie, who is fantastic, is hell bent on finding a gin that I like. And I try, I try gins and. Uh, and there's some that I like better than others, but it's not something that's my go-to, right? And uh, it's just not something I find a lot of employment in. And the way I describe it, because people can get sometimes, you've probably seen it, like can get like almost defensive. Like they like tequila, like, why don't you like it? It's like, I just don't, you know? So uh, mm-hmm. I've described it as, uh, you know, it's like, it's like a band. You know, I use the example of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, right? It's, they're very talented bands. They're very talented people. I just don't like their music. It's just, I don't think it's bad music. I just think it's not for me. And I think mm-hmm. when I use put it that way, people can be like, okay, I get it. You know, like, you know, I'm not putting down their tequila because I'm not a big tequila guy either. I'm just saying not my cup of tea. <laughs> no, it's fair. I got plenty of distilleries I can list on that one. Plenty of uh, musicians too that, like you said, it's not the quality of the product. They're yeah. putting out good stuff. Some of them are not putting out good stuff, but sure. of the ones that are putting out good stuff that you still just don't like, people are allowed to not like things. I got two rules on my website. It's drink what you like and drink it how you like it. You know, I don't care if you, you know, I'm approved for, I, I love if it's the high proof, the better. I've got a sample of um, the Jack Daniels Coy Hill, like the new release. Uh, I think the sample I got is like 153 plus proof. I got that coming. I'm going to love it. Yeah. I know like smelling it would melt half the people's face off. Um, but I know. I'm also, I have to remind myself frequently that there was a point in my whiskey 
tasting journey where I thought wild turkey as a brand, as a flavor profile was too spicy for me. Um, couldn't go near Pete. Couldn't drink anything. And now like if it's below hundred proof, I don't taste the alcohol that that burns totally yeah. gone for me <laughs> to your, to your point earlier that yeah. you just, you evolve and you grow. Um, we have a lot of so, people come in and you, I'm sure you see it too with people that, that you talk to and a lot of people want to be, well, I, I, some people want to be guided through like, Hey, what, what do you think the best practices are? And some people you can tell, I think are, they don't want to do it wrong. Like they'll be doing tasting and they say, well, what should I do here? And what I'll typically say is, Hey, here's some things to consider, you know, like talking about, you know, nose it carefully. Don't get your nose too far in there. If you're used to wine or, you know, keep your mouth open, recommend this, you know, maybe you know, all these things. I try to give them a tool set and say, Hey, here are some things you can do, but really I agree with you hundred percent. At the end of the day, you do what you want. It's, it's, it's for your enjoyment. And, you know, people say, Oh, what can I do with this? And I'll recommend cocktails or whatever. Like, Hey, if you want to throw, throw it in Coke, throw it in Coke. I, I don't recommend it simply because you're not going to taste it. You might as well get something cheap uh, for your wallet. But I mean, you're not going to hurt my feelings. If, if it gives you enjoyment, then I'm happy. And I promise we will get into old line for sure in a couple of minutes, sure. but I got to ask now, uh, what, if you were to go towards a gin, like, um, what do you, I guess not what you look for. Cause that's not really what it sounds like at the moment. It's like, what, what things do you, uh, dislike the least? Let's say, uh, I, I would say if I were looking at a gin, I'd say like any sort of citrusy profile, I would like, uh, that would fall into something I would enjoy more. Um, I think floral and herbal can kind of trend together. I think floral I'm good with herbal. Um, if it gets on the medicine side, um, I start mm -hmm. to have a, a kind of a negative feeling about it. Um, I'd say it's probably kind of light on the juniper would be my, if those things kind of come together to something in your mind, but yes, citrusy light on the juniper, I think would be kind of the big ones. Okay. Cause I, I have a gin in mind that, okay. um, by the time this episode comes out, the review for it will long come out. I'm actually going to taste it later tonight again and write it up uh, quickly um, at the risk of cross-promotion, which don't I have please. to do anyway. Yeah, as long as you don't mind, uh, I don't mind. No, not at all. I love mentioning friends, other distilleries. So um, it's it's a new gin from Fort Hamilton Distillery up okay. here in Brooklyn. And uh, I, I don't want to butcher the history here. So long story short, the, the Battle of Brooklyn started in the Revolutionary War started four blocks from where Fort Hamilton Distillery is now. The British landed on Fort Hamilton. They walked up what is now Fourth uh, Avenue uh, and stopped at what is also now Greenwood Cemetery in a watermelon patch. And the fight broke out there. Um, if you want more historical stuff, I know I'm usually on top of the things with the history, but I didn't expect this topic to come up, so I'm not prepared. Uh, but so their, their gin, which I tasted last weekend, is um, very light on the juniper, very light on the herbal notes. It's more like a watermelon cucumber forward. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, less water, less of the red part of the watermelon, more like a watermelon rind. Yep. So also not, a, not as sweet. Um, I loved it straight, had no burn at all. Uh, I don't mind using the word smooth on there. It was very, very smooth. My, my wife, who doesn't drink straight spirits like um she was able to to drink it to sip it straight um and not cough and not anything so you know god bless her because i i was ready to step in and be like hey alex like uh alex clark the 
uh, founder uh, and owner of Fort Hamilton. I was like, Alex, you know, just letting you know, Jess doesn't usually drink straight spirits. So like she might enjoy it in the cocktail more first. I was ready to give her the out. And then she just sipped and I was like, oh, damn. Yeah, it's good for you. <laughs> um, but it also does go really well in cocktails. But uh, I'll let me see if I can um, get you some of that to try because I'm someone who personally who likes gins on both sides of the spectrum. I usually do like the citrusy ones the best overall, um, but I also don't mind it being super juniper heavy, um, like a real London, like London yeah. dry style. Um, but this one sounds like it might be might be up your alley. And uh, I, I know because, you yeah, know, I, I really want to find I like uh, I don't drink a, a ton of clear spirit cocktails, but uh, if I do, I don't do a ton of vodka, but I'll do a dirty martini. Just if it's a, just I want olive juice with a kick <laughs> is what I'm doing there. But sure. um, I, I would like to find a, a gin martini that I like. And this sounds like something I would like to try. Yeah, I can say the two that they made for us were uh, a bee's knees for, for my wife, and uh, which wasn't too sweet, wasn't too heavy on the honey. And then I had an Italian greyhound. Uh, so it has some that you would like, too, because it has uh, kind of like a grapefruit base okay. to it. Um, those two were great. The Negroni was great. Uh, Negroni is always a great one for me because you've already got the bitterness from the Campari, so you don't want to necessarily want a gin that's too bitter as well. Um, Agreed. Unless you just want your face to just like kind of suck into itself. As a huge Bombardier it. fan as well. There you go. Um, so, yeah, let me see if I can uh, set that up because I, I think you would enjoy that. I appreciate that, and actually, and the fact that you brought up uh, the Battle of Brooklyn is it's very apropos. So we'll, we'll, we'll touch on that most of the day. Okay, then I can go. I can jump in now if you want, actually. If uh, happy, it's, it's actually a pretty good segue. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. jump in right now. Um, and I'm not trying to jump back to old line, I'm actually enjoying wherever we talk about, but it is funny that you mentioned that because uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of people, uh, I was one of them, uh, who didn't understand where the uh, where old line So old line is a Maryland state nickname, as, as, mm -hmm. as they may know. And um, a lot of people understandably assume that it's because the northern border of the state is the Mason Dixon line, uh, which is something that, you know, we as a company, as we wouldn't touch it if that were the, you know, just as a divisive, you know, thing. Sure. So, but uh, what we found out, because one of my friends, when we were looking at me in the business, said, what about old line? And we're, and we're, ah, you know, it seems like there's a lot of, it's kind of heavy. And he's like, well, no, do you know the real story? And I said, oh, I guess I don't. So it actually relates to, I'm not sure you're aware of this, it relates to the Battle of Brooklyn. Are you familiar with this? Uh, only because I was on the tour with uh, with Arch. But oh. <laughs> so so before you before you go forward, because I, I was I definitely wanted this to be a topic. Oh, fair as well. enough. Yeah, I'll follow so, your the, lead. so this is a this is a great no, you're gonna resume in, in just a second. Um, because like literally number two on my topic list was the meaning of old line. Sure. Um, but I just do want to mention, so yes, I, I got to visit you guys in person. Uh, just over a month ago, um, so I got to do the tour with with Arch, uh, and as it relates to our topics on on proof and on tasting things and how to taste things, just very quickly, the tasting um, was five of us. It was me, I think a father and son, one of their birthdays, and then a husband and wife, where the wife drank straight spirit and the husband did not, uh, and uh, it was funny to see all the the five of us as all five very different types of drinkers going through the 
the types of whiskey we were going through. Um, so that being said, um, I did, I didn't know the meaning of old line other than, as you said, the Mason Dixon version of the old line, uh, before coming into this. Uh, so take it away with the story of where old line really comes from. Yeah. Uh, appreciate it. Actually, I hope you don't mind. I just put myself a little, uh, little dram here. No, no, no uh, I'm going to do the same. Yeah. Good. good. <laughs> nice. The, uh, so yeah, so the old line, uh, name it's from the, uh, revolutionary war battle of Brooklyn, as, as you kind of led into nicely earlier. And, uh, I may, I may butcher the details slightly, but, uh, by and large, uh, like you mentioned, the British landed it's 1777, maybe. Um, and the British, uh, my understanding is Admiral Howe was kind of loitering off the coast of, you know, Long Island slash Brooklyn. The British were still in the period where you know, they still viewed us as countrymen that were rebelling as opposed to a new country that were fighting. And it was, it was a lot of, I think the British had kind of held off on really coming down hard on, on the American rebels, hoping for a peaceful resolution. Well, it became pretty apparent that wasn't going to happen. And Admiral Howe decided that you know, he was going to land troops in, in what is now Brooklyn. And uh, he saw that Washington had a, a pretty weak position, or at least it was a weakness in the position started to land troops. Uh, Washington immediately realized how he was outgunned uh, and exposed uh, and immediately started to make plans to evacuate the army from Brooklyn uh, in, across the East River into Manhattan and then up to safety. Uh, but they needed to hold off the Brits long enough for that to happen. And it just so happened that uh, the Maryland uh, line, the Maryland unit there, happened to be very well uh, trained, very well equipped. Um, so you know, back then, as you may know, you didn't necessarily get issued a rifle or issued equipment. You kind of showed up with what you had. And there happened to be a decent number of well-equipped, well-trained people showing up. And uh, Washington used that unit to hold off the British, to kind of continually harass the British, to keep uh, them occupied, to let the rest of the army escape. And they did it successfully, uh, but with about 95% casualties. Uh, and so most of them were killed or captured, or at least wounded. Uh, but they succeeded in their goal, uh, and the Washington, Washington's army, the Continental Army, survived to fight another day. So because the Maryland line held the line uh, that day, um, George Washington uh, referred to that unit as his old line, uh, as a term of uh, respect and you know, um, uh, endearment. And when statehood came uh, after the war, I mean, you know, statehood came um, because that, that had happened, it was just a big deal. Maryland adopted the name, the Old Line State. So we love it because one, it's a great, Old Line just sounds like an old whiskey name. Um, it's uh, It's got a great story that a lot of people don't know about. I didn't know about it until I was I was told, you know, you know six, seven, eight years ago. And, uh, you know, we're military guys. So we kind of like that military heritage to it. And uh, the other marketing benefit is that, you know, well, you're up in, you know, you're in New York. So let's say we had Empire State vodka, whatever you want to call it. Well, you're selling that in California or Montana. Everybody knows it's from New York. Whether that's good or bad, it depends. But you know, it's, it's very clear. So you get all that local play at home, but maybe Empire State doesn't play good in Montana. Whereas Old Line, it plays well locally because a lot of people know the state nickname, but outside of Maryland, no one knows it. It's really not a well-known state nickname. So we don't have that kind of drag of, you know, almost being too local in our name, if that makes any sense. So. Sure. And along with that, just taking that to a logical extension, that's fewer people who might be more familiar with the the later negative connotation that's really not Maryland's fault at all it, it it's just a yeah. fact of, of geography yes agree yeah so yeah to your point you know if we go to you know we're, we're selling probably for example Colorado and I don't think people make 
they don't see old line here in Maryland. I don't think that they jump to that. Right. Uh, but, uh, and you know, if they do, they do, uh, but we have it on our website and, you know, say, Hey, here's where the name came from. And, uh, I think we do. We used to, uh, I think it's still there. So at any rate, it's been a, it's a good name for us and it, and it hits a lot of, uh, yeah, it just kind of worked out well for us. We were very pleased with it. Absolutely. And, uh, so I should ask which, uh, pour are you enjoying? Actually the cognac finish, which I'm, I'm due to send you. I got you. All right. So I'm, I'm enjoying the cast strength. Nice. That's, that's my go-to typically. I, I literally reached down, I'm sitting at the bar and the speed rail is this one of my right, one of my left. And I actually went for cast strength and I grabbed the wrong bottle and I said, all right, I'll go with this. I noticed it was darker. So I was like, it's probably either the cast strength or a finish or something like that. So, yeah, it was um, finish. so uh, in a, what I think would be a good segue into the kind of really the, the next phase of the origin of old line distillery or old line spirits rather. And, and the distillery uh, was, so you guys are, are taking over a, an existing operation. Correct. Uh, you've, you know, made any number of steps in between that are required, you know, transfer of ownership and, and figuring out where you're going to put it and all of this. Um, how did you end up in, uh, in Maryland's, which I would argue is kind of the, uh, it's, you know, an American single malt in the land of rye. Uh, 100%. So actually, well, it's a very commonly asked question. We were actually already here. So when I quit, my banking job was actually in, in Baltimore. My wife's from okay. the DC area. So uh, I'm, from, <coughs> excuse me, I'm from the Boston area, but when I got out of the Navy, we anchored near, you know, pick a family, we anchored near hers. And um, so we were already here. So when, when Arch and I set out, there weren't, to our knowledge, there was zero, to, there might've been one, a really small one uh, that's still tiny, tiny, tiny. Uh, but like Sagamore, the, you know, the big rye producer and then our, our, uh, and we're good friends with them. And then our friends over at Baltimore spirits company, neither one, none of us had started yet. So there's this opportunity of like, Hey, there's this kind of medium sized mid Atlantic city that hasn't really had, had this distillery thing yet. So like, Hey, great. And earlier I mentioned, we were thinking about bourbon and rye. Well, not only do we love those spirits, but rye is a Maryland is rye country to exactly your point. So the single malt thing um, fell into our lap and it was essentially a, an early stage kind of paradigm shift as to what we were going to do with the company. Um, so, yeah, so the answer is we were already here and uh, the, how I met Bob and Jim, the, the former owners of what's called Golden Distillery. Um, so I mentioned I quit the job. It, it, the whole story is like over a beer sometime. I'll give you the whole like 20 minute version, but the, the, the slightly abridged version is um, quit the job. Like I said, I was dissatisfied. It wasn't, it wasn't getting any younger. My wife, uh, I had two kids at the time. Now I have three. And my wife, who is very much a person who likes a plan and likes to have, where's the paycheck coming from? Understandably, she couldn't have been cooler. She was just like, you know, like, all right. Like, if not now, when? Sure. Like, and she was supportive of, of giving it a go. So I was going out to the West Coast anyway, because I used to be stationed down near Seattle for years. And a buddy of mine was getting married. I was in the wedding. Um, and I remember being at my, my computer desk at my, my job, I give my notice and I knew I was going up to Seattle for the wedding and I'm thinking, all right, well, I'm leaving this job. I want to start a distillery. I should probably meet somebody and talk. Uh, Seattle's got a lot of breweries. Maybe they have distilleries too. You know, this is back in 2014. I'm just kind of like, I don't know what the hell's going on. So I remember Google searching Seattle distillery click. And the first thing that popped up was the American distilling Institute 
was having their annual conference that same week that I was going to the wedding. So like the, the few days after I, my, my last day at work. So uh, it was like, holy smokes, like this is serendipity. So I ended up flying out to the wedding a couple of days early, crashing with a buddy in Seattle and just going to this conference. And so I'm showing up. And this, so for those of your, of your listeners who may not be familiar with the American Distilling Institute, uh, it's a great organization. And the short way to put it is they're really there to help uh, support the groundswell of the craft spirits movement. They want to help new entrants. People do new and interesting things. Uh, they're really there to just help, you know, what happened in craft beer, something similar to happen to spirits. So look, what a great place for a, a newbie to go out there and, and just kind of shake hands and figure out which way is up. So I, but I showed up there knowing that I knew nothing. You know, I'm like, I, I don't know a thing, but if you don't know a thing, you're in the right spot. After the first day of that conference, uh, I was like, my head was ringing. Like I, I showed up knowing I knew nothing. And after the first day, I realized I knew way less than nothing. Like I was, I was out of my league. And um, my second day, uh, I remember sitting there and I went to Seoul. It's all taking place in a, in a big hotel conference center or whatever. And uh, I was checking my email on my phone outside the, uh, the main conference area. And a gentleman came by and plopped down next to me and starts chatting me up. And I remember thinking, I was in a bad mood. I was in self-pity mode. This guy seems nice, but I'm like, I don't want to talk to somebody right now. You know, I said all those, all those things that go through your head, but he's a really nice guy. I try not to be an asshole. So I say, Hey, sir, how you doing? My name's Mark. You know, we start chatting and after about five minutes. He's like, well, what's, what's, what's your stick? Why are you here? I'm like, well, you know, I'm from Baltimore. I live in Baltimore. I'm out here, you know, for a wedding, but I also want to start a distillery. You're here to kind of figure out which way's up. And he said, uh, all right, man, well, uh, want to buy mine? So I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. So having been an investment banker four days prior, I'm thinking this thing's big. I'm thinking this whole, he's got lawyers and a banker and all, or a business broker or something. So I'm like, okay, okay. Uh, you know, blah, 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 this, all these questions. Like, who's your attorney? Who's your broker? You know, how many offers do you have? I just wanted to know where I was in the rat race of acquiring this company. And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Slow down, slow down. You are literally the first guy I've told. So he drove down. Bob lived 90 minutes north of Seattle, which is coincidentally, as a crow flies, 15 miles from the base where I flew out of for years. And um, he drove down there because, as I mentioned earlier, his business partner had a terminal condition, unfortunately. Uh, Jim Cotto was his name. And um, this, they did this as a retirement hobby. You know, they lived with neighbors in this beautiful spot of land called uh, Samish Islands. It's really a spit of land. They call it an island. It used to be an island. So Sandwich Island, and they basically were just doing this for fun in Bob's bar and making this great whiskey. And it went from being this fun, two neighbors having a good time, you know, selling a few bottles. When Jim got sick, now Jim can't be around the fumes and the grain dust and all that. Uh, he had a lung condition. And then, you know, Bob's a social guy. This isn't fun to do by yourself. So that's when it, that's why they were looking to sell. So they that got him in the car to drive down to the American Dissilians too, because he knew there'd be a lot of lost puppies like me there. And I'm just the first puppy that he uh, bumped into. So it's, it, was, it was wild. And um, you know, a month later, uh, so I actually met uh, a gentleman who is now actually on our board of directors, who's uh, you know, Richard Wolf. And Richard has a, a, a you know, lot of experience, both in the larger spirits world. Uh, he used to be the general manager of Buffalo Trace. Uh, but then after that, uh, he went in and uh, started his own practice. Uh, of uh, consulting with you know new distillers so richard and i flew out there a month later just kicked the tires and just fell in love with it and uh arch came aboard about two weeks later and the rest is history so that's how we got into the 
that's why we are doing American single malt in rye country is that that's the opportunity that presented itself to us. And uh, I remember saying to Richard, who I mentioned a minute ago, like, hey, Richard, I don't know. You know, I love the idea of doing bourbon and rye and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, like, I was going to start from nothing. And now we're taking over another company, albeit a tiny one. And he, he almost shook my shoulders like, dude, this is gold. Like, this juice is good and the story is awesome. Like, run with it, run with it. I mean, <laughs> coming from Buffalo Trace, I'm sure he had an idea of that anyway. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you have plenty of distilleries who start either from scratch or through acquisition uh, that are younger that can't say the same. They don't have good juice right away or they do. Or it's kind of okay, but they got to sell it, keep things running. But uh, to know that you have the good juice right away and be able to taste it before the distilleries is even yours is magical. Oh, a hundred percent. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, and Bob would be the first to tell you, um, and he'd say the same thing today. Uh, like, Hey man, we made rock gut for the first three years. He's like, we didn't know what we were doing. Uh, but trial and error, you know, get a little help here and there with the yeast and all that. And he goes, and it just, it clicked. And so to your point, we didn't have, they, that's probably one of the biggest gifts they gave us was that we didn't have to do that trial and error period. Now we've made changes. We've, we obviously continual improvement. Uh, you always want to make it better and better and better. And we want to be a little bit more our own. So we've made some changes, uh, but to have that handed to us, we're like, Hey, if you do A, B, C, D, and E, this is the end result, give or take, right? And that was a, uh, and that actually allowed us to scale more quickly because knowing that if you do this process with these ingredients uh, and you you know age it this way, you're going to get something like this at the end. That made us much more confident to scale up more quickly as far as barrels because we knew it wasn't like we we're like, oh, I'm going to fill it up. It's good. Uh, we, we had pretty good confidence that it was going to be very good. Right, right. Um, and uh, I definitely want to hit on also a photo that I will include when this episode goes live of the, I don't even know what shape to call it, py pyramidal diamond still that's yeah. in the distilling space. Yeah, it looks like a like a lava lamp made out of copper. Yeah, exactly. That, that's a better way to put it, yeah. Um, so was that from from Bob? Yes, sir. So, that's a, so the one that you saw in the warehouse was there, I believe it or not, that was their big still. Uh, that was a 60-gallon still. But actually, what I'm looking at behind me uh, is a 30 gallon still you, you you you're in the bar i'm sure it was here you probably didn't even see it because it's like in front of a brick wall and it's small so they started off with a 30 gallon still and you know upgraded to a 60 gallon and it was open flame heated uh it was on a uh, it sat on a think of like what you griddle you cook burgers on at a restaurant and you know it the base i don't know what you said it's probably i'm looking at it now at the window probably three feet in diameter three and a half feet maybe so maybe a four yeah. inch uh, very, very narrow foot space yeah, exactly. Yeah. I just fit right on this thing. So that was a uh, that was heated with propane. So that was a nightmare on many levels. First of all, it's a explosive way to happen, uh, but also temperature control was crazy. Uh, you know, it just as as you know, like distillation, uh, batch distillation especially, you, you have to have a predictable temperature increase because you know you got to know when you're making your cuts. If your temperatures are spiking and going, it's you're out to lunch. You, know, you lose control real quick. So, uh, but anyway, uh, it was open flame heated and, uh, it, it would pump out about five gallons a day and believe it or not, um, they would single distill, which you don't really, you hear about that maybe with like, a some Armagnacs, I think, and things like that. Yeah. Um, and the reason they were able to get away with it 
is that Bob would shove a hundred feet of copper wire mesh and he'd replace it every I don't know, couple months um, up that still head um, and then acted as a reflux agent. So it, it definitely had a, uh, a more tailsy character than we, I mean, we, I love, love, love whiskey he made. Had a little bit more of a heavy uh, tailsy character to it, uh, which is not a bad thing. It's just different. So since then, we, you know, we've moved immediately to double distillation and, and a couple other things to kind of clean it up. Um, and again, I don't mean clean it up saying there's just sloppy. It's not exactly what we wanted. But at any rate, it was single distilled, which is, you know, we give that to other distilleries, but like that's single distilled. And they'd be like, no, you're wrong. <laughs> right. telling you. No, you're right. That's usually, uh, I was just talking to someone like over the weekend about this, that how Armagnacs are one of the very last spirits at this point to be truly single distilled. Um, and because of that very raw character, then you can, you know, they require that long aging. That's how you get a 30 year old Armagnac that costs 80 bucks or a hundred bucks or something because they just in the way that American whiskey expects the opposite. So that a super aged whiskey is going to be really expensive and you want to push out a little earlier. Armagnac knows it's going to take 15, 20 years for that spirit to get rid of that raw characters. So that cost is already built in and expectations yeah. already built in. Um, so just, I mean, I just looked at that still and I just, and listeners, you'll, you'll, you'll know it when you see it. Um, I was just fascinated how, how it even functioned as a still. I can kind so, of see the direct heating underneath, but the rest. Yep. So the rest, so <laughs> the, uh, there's actually a line arm uh, on there that you can almost not see because I mean, it's like, it's like that long. So like, uh, there's a, uh, I should get pulled in here. So, but the, so uh, the line arm was probably three inches long and then it went to a, vert a vertical uh, condenser on the, on the side. And that basically, so when you were looking at, at the bottom of the condenser, it just kind of ended and there was a hole. So there was this like, clear plastic tube that would then connect to another long copper, maybe four or five foot long line that would then go into a collecting device like a car balloon. Um, but the issue was Bob warned us. He's like, first of all, during our, our apprenticeships, we, you know, we decided we wanted to buy the business, moved out, agreed on a number. Arch and I lived in his guest house. Jim had passed away, the uh, neighbor, unfortunately, but we lived in Bob's guest house, he treated us like family. And he went to Hawaii. Uh, after like four weeks of our apprenticeship, he's like, ah, yeah, Debbie and I are going to Hawaii. I'm like, whoa, 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 what about like this whole apprenticeship? He's like, ah, if you don't burn it down, it's yours. <laughs> but he said, hey, don't forget, as the temperature increases on the still, you got to take this little like, you know, screwdriver thingy, you just tighten up the band that holds on the plastic tube that connects the, the plastic tube that connects the condenser to that long tube that takes the dissolute away from the flame into the carboy, right? Well, Arch was out doing something one day, I forget where he was, and I was you know, watching the still, and I'm sitting there across the room, and I'd forgotten to do that. So the heat had expanded the, uh, the clamp enough where the thing fell, so now 160 proof or whatever is spewing out the side. It was like a fight or flight, like, okay, I can run out the door and, and live, <laughs> but I can hope I can get there fast enough. I just ran and like, turned off all the gas, and everything was fine. But uh, yeah, it, it was a, when it was fully functional you, you'd see a little bit more on there but it looked almost like a dr seuss uh, contraption like everything's kind of like is it really going to stay on there? it it kind of redefines hazmat whiskey for sure uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah nothing in that place by the way was uh, any sort of OSHA compliant like if any they were so far in the middle of nowhere I, I doubt the state of washington ever went there to look at it like 
it's like, you know, like when you go to your grandparents' house and you go to the attic and it's old, like 1960s board games of risk and this, you know, that's all that stuff. Like old kayaks were above the still. If you slam the door too hard, like dust kind of settled down. <laughs> like, and like everything was done, like just like you'd expect. Not moonshiny per se, but definitely not right, looked upon in a regulatory fashion very often. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, that, uh, yeah, <laughs> there, there's really nothing, I mean, we can describe it and we've, you've described it well, and now I can kind of see how it works, but, but before you trust me, if you're listening, like look at the photo that I'm going to post for this, because that's the only way you're going to understand what we're talking about here. About. I'll email you a picture of it from Washington state from golden, uh, in use and, oh, and you'll, perfect. Be, you'll, yeah, you'll, you'll, it'll tell you it, it speaks a thousand words. Perfect. Perfect. Um, I can already tell this is going to be probably a longer episode if that's okay with you. Cause we got, you know, we still got a lot to cover, but I'm loving these yeah, I'm loving the little it. things we go off. So, um, <laughs> and we haven't really even talked about like what you, what you guys are doing now yet, which is, we will get to for sure. Um, so, you know, the first thing before we get to what you guys are doing now, uh, I wanted to mention one other really his- important historical thing about, Maryland, which um, you guys mentioned, um, I went from directly from you guys to Sagamore when I was down there. So nice. Sagamore mentioned it, um, which is that uh, Maryland had a very unique position on prohibition. Um, and uh, the reason I mentioned it is, again, it, go- it goes back to that whole land of rye thing. So rye, if you know, if you're listening, rye w- was uh, much more prevalent before prohibition. It as, a, as an American whiskey style and prohibition pretty much wiped it out. Like bourbon survived, but, uh, you know, badly wounded, but it survived. Rye was just almost, almost obliterated. Um, and one of the few places it stuck around was really Maryland's a little bit in Pennsylvania um, and, and that region. So um, I'm, I'll leave it to you if you want to tell a little bit about why why Maryland was very uniquely positioned in the prohibition age. Yeah. It's uh, another nickname besides, you know, old, you know, every state has several nicknames and one of Maryland's, I don't know if it's a, probably a less official nickname is the free state. And uh, as I understand it, um, to your point during prohibition, uh, the state did not enforce any of uh, bullshit acts. So of course I'm sure there were, you know, the feds would do what they would try to do, but they were not supported in any way by, um, by the Maryland state or local agencies. So it was a place where prohibition still existed technically, but um, didn't feel the pinch it, it might have in other, it did in other states. Uh, that's my kind of quick and dirty uh, understanding of it. Yeah, I mean, that, that's basically what I heard as well is that the, Maryland couldn't care less what yeah. anyone did. There were, it was free flowing. You were always at risk of getting graded by the feds or something like that happening. But, um, you know, barring federal presence, you know, there were places we think of speakeasies all around the country during prohibition. There, it wasn't like that in Maryland. It was very out in the open. Yeah, very out there. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. It's uh, it's a cool, it's a cool, uh, it's a cool history. being in this industry. Yeah, and I had no idea about it until I until I was down there. So um, again, there's always more to be learned here. All right, so let's move into old line spirits of today. 
Um, and as I'm apt to do, I already got ahead of myself, which is, I'll say, uh, so you, you know, you came into it and, and because of the situation you had, you were coming into an existing operation, et cetera. Um, there was already a style of the whiskey as well. Yes. So, uh, the question regarding that would be two-parter, uh, also my favorite thing to do. First part being, you know, how much did you keep or change from that original style? And secondly, um, even though you, you said you got more into other single malts after trying uh, this American single malt, uh, were there any distilleries or profiles that kind of inspired you as you were uh, obtaining this profile? The uh, Good question. So I'll start with, um, yes, yeah, so there, there absolutely was a, uh, a profile. Um, that Bob and Jim had established that we, we love. We still have some bottles squirreled away um, of kind of that legacy profile. Um, and it's fantastic. So the one of the big things uh, about American single malt is, and this will tie back into your question, is as you're probably familiar, there, there really isn't a category of American single malt yet. Uh, there's American malt whiskey, which is how we are technically defined uh, according to the TTB which is uh, basically think of the bourbon definition and just replace the word corn with the term malted barley. Um, so technically, according to the TTB, uh, our, you know, our regulatory agency, the feds, um, Amer American malt whiskeys need to use virgin oak just like a bourbon, uh, which we do, but we don't do it because the government says so, but there's plenty of um, American single malt producers who don't do that. And that's like the government, no one's like, no one's really digging into that. It's like, it's, where this is going is that all of us who make this product have, or most of us have banded together into what's called the American Single Malt Commission. And we're basically putting forth to the government, like, hey, we think this is what the definition of American Single Malt should be. And that definition includes used oak or new oak. So used oak, more old school, old world style, and then new oak, the American, you know, American rye, bourbon style. So at any rate, but Bob and Jim, they didn't really give a shit about that. What, what the government wanted them to do. They were just making the whiskey they liked and they loved that virgin oak flavor. So they were using actually 10 gallon barrels, which those can be really, really tricky. And you can get a lot of ways those can go sideways. Uh, but they made some great products and they were doing uh, number three, number four jar, virgin. So the small barrel thing's a different thing. We've, we've kind of moved away from that. Uh, but the, uh, I mentioned earlier, they kept the single distilled and temperature control was a bit of a, a challenge with that system, as I kind of alluded to earlier. You know, you, you're literally changing the temperature in the still with these little dials, like you were heating the grill up for burgers or dogs, or whatever. So by the time the stainless steel heats up, the copper heats up, the liquid heats up, if you overdid it, 20 minutes later, you see the proof rocket at the bottom, which means you've gone too high, and, you know, and now you're spilling out tails early. So you had to manage all these things. So they definitely had a, a whiskey that was a little more on the tailsy side. And now I say that, not necessarily a bad way because tails, in my opinion, are uh, really, they are what you want them to be. Like, you know, too much, too much tails. Yeah, you get white paper bag, really strong funk, you know, some things that probably no one's going to like. But, you know, in some ways, one man's tails is another man's hearts, right? There's a lot, there's some, there's some um, subjectivity there, I think, as far as, you know, a little extra of those tails, the elements, the higher alcohols, you can get some really nice fruity character, you can get, uh, wonderful mouth feel, so things like that. So anyway, by Hooker by Crook, they had this product that was definitely uh, heavier, uh, a little more of a range of like, I'd say fig, 
and some of those kind of ripe, uh, really ripe stone fruits. Occasionally I get some honey um, character in it. And then the virgin oak, giving all those things that virgin oak does, the honey is the, I'm sorry, excuse me, the vanilla is the, the caramel is the baking spice. So great product. Um, but when we, when our chai took over, in addition to making it like safer by, by not doing it on open flame anymore, um, we wanted to really continue with the, uh, with the virgin oak. That was very important to us because we're American guys and we love American style whiskey. So as much as I think scotch is amazing, Irish whiskey is amazing, where we wanted to age it in the traditional American fashion. So the new oak was a, was a foregone conclusion that we were going to stick with that. Uh, but we did immediately, like I said, go to double distillation and we actually got cleaner with the way we did our cuts. Um, so what's coming off the still today in the past, you know, five, six years is a cleaner spirit. Uh, whereas maybe Bob and Jim, I think they distilled all the way down to like a hundred proof maybe. Um, and Jerry, our distiller can tell you exactly, but we don't distill that low anymore. So we, we cut off the distillation, you know, we make our tails cut at a higher proof than those guys did. Uh, so what we want to have is a, is a, a spirit that ultimately drinks, think of it like it's a single malt whiskey for a bourbon drinker is how, the, is how we describe it. And that is not to say we're trying to be a bourbon or we're trying to be a scotch. We're not trying to be either one, but we're trying to take what we feel are some really wonderful elements of both categories and use them both to give ourselves our own flavor profile. But ultimately things, all the things that a bourbon delivers, um, we deliver them just in a, in a very different way, but we deliver those same things. And one of the big things for us on that was to clean up the distillation, to give it that, that cleaner, crisper mouthfeel uh, that you typically would get with a bourbon or a rye. Um, but other than that, same grain, um, same ratio. We use about, was it 90% is a, a two-row, called a Copeland two-row pale malt, uh, premium two-row. And then 10% uh, is a, a deep kiln toasted malt called a C120. Uh, the C120 gives you a pretty low alcohol yield because, you know, as they caramelize those grains and the and uh, a crystal malt, for those of you who may not know who are listening, when the grain is malted and you know, they soak the grain, it causes it to sprout and they dry it out. And the way they dry it out has a dramatic effect on the flavor profile. So two grains that were identical at the starting of the uh, malting process, if they're, if they're malted in different ways, you can get very dramatic differences. So yeah, the, the crystal malt is dried out at a much higher temperature. So some of those sugars that have started to form caramelize. You get really nice dark chocolate roasted kind of coffee notes. Um, but we lose the alcohol yields because the more you caramelize it, the less the yeast can actually consume those sugars. So that's why we use only 10% of it, but we get a really nice kind of dark chocolate back, uh, dark toffee, things like that are in there, uh, those flavors. So we kept the grains the same. The yeast, we kept pretty much the same. We've tweaked that a little bit, um, but nothing dramatic. Uh, and then um, the only thing we've changed on the aging side really is we've phased out the smaller barrels. And we now age in predominantly 53 gallon, but also some 30 gallon barrels. So that's kind of, we've kept the, the heart of it the same, but we've made some, some still some meaningful changes. Um, so if you were to line up these whiskeys side by side, you'd know that they're cousins or even, you know that they're siblings, I'd say, but they're definitely, you know, they're not twins. Gotcha. gotcha. Um, I find that, so I find that really fascinating. You're able to, to play more with the tails end of things. So you know, comparing the the heads and the tails, the the tails give you that flexibility to be able to play. The, the heads you you have to get out of there, hundred percent, because because they're. I mean, that's where you got poisonous stuff. You got stuff that's the stuff that makes you go blind in old tales about moonshining. Um, but uh, yeah, the tails. If you go 
depending how far you go down. I mean, yeah, you might, if you go too far, you get, I don't, I remember what that compound is called, but the, the wet paper bag is the exact yeah, right smell for it. You know, maybe. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Um, but you also get other, other fusel oils that are, give a really nice mouthfeel to it. Um, maybe even less flavor side, but more mouthfeel flavor, mouthfeel impact, I should say. Um, and uh, you can just play with them more because these are not things that are unlike the heads. They're not things that are necessarily going to harm you by playing around with it. Agreed. Um, yeah. So you can, you know, you can keep them in and if something is distilling at a hundred degrees, it's, that's a, a very low temperature. So it's, it's not going to be vol- as volatile. It's not going to, so the short, long, short of it being, I'm, glad to see someone playing around with the tails a little bit more because it's not always done people and the way that you phrased it was important too because most people will phrase it as we're just making a wider hearts cut but the way you're describing it is very much like i mean yes the hearts are wider if you look at it this way but it's really more that you're digging into the tails and seeing what the tails can give you to create the profile you want agreed 100 percent agreed yeah. And, it, you know, the interesting thing I, I describe to people at the distillery is, you know, let's say five of us, let's say you, me, and, and some friends, uh, we all take turns at old line distilling and we have the same grain, same yeast, same basic process with the exception of we can, the only thing we can change is our cuts. Five of us will probably make the heads cut at almost the exact same time. Because to your point, like it's noticeable, like it's no bueno, you don't want that stuff in there. We can smell it, you know. Uh, and five of us would make different telescopes because what you want is different than what I want. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, it's really, I think that's where a lot, I mean, this, the grains, the way it's mashed, the yeast, all those things have a big effect, but uh, that cut, I think is a, is a big factor in what eventually you sip on. And I'm just curious on your, uh, on your side of things with the, where you said that everyone would make the head cut at the same point from what I've heard, I haven't had a chance to like make a heads cut myself on a still, but I've heard kind of the first flavor note you get where you know it's okay is that um, Granny Smith apple or or a very bright apple note. You know, I, I have to, so that's, I haven't done it myself in a long time. Jerry, our distiller, could tell you. So what, what we've done is, which I think a lot of people do is we, it, for us, we're small enough, we're still, to your point, like a palate-based decision. Uh, but whenever we make that cut, there's two data points, or at least two, maybe more. The two that I'm aware of are what was the temperature at the top of the still? So the temperature is going to start low and go up all day. And then what's the proof coming out? It's going to start high and go low. So when Jerry decides, okay, it's time for a cut, you know, he'll take those data points and it goes to a spreadsheet. That way we have data backing up. Okay, over time, we can see this is where we made the head's cut, tail's cut. But as far as exactly the flavor profile, what he's looking for, Jerry can answer that better than I could. Uh, another thing that I know starts to recede is that um, solvent, um, nail polish remover, things you get right. in the heads and four shots and all that start to start to fade away and, and grain and other flavors. Um, you know, green apple is a great one. Green apple is a tricky one though, from, in my opinion, because green apple, um, it's always going to kind of be in there, but too much of it can actually be uh, in my opinion, a flaw. Some of it is always going to be there. Those are aldehydes, as I understand it. And aldehydes are always going to be in there, just like methanol is always going to be in there, this, that, or the other. But if you get a lot of aldehydes, um, that can be a, uh, uh, a, hot, a, a hot fermentation, I think, can give you that. 
So it doesn't mean that you're not going to have them in every run. It's just a matter of if you start to notice, wow, a lot of green apple here, you might start thinking. Right. Your, your yeast was too stressed during the fermentation or something. Oh, 100. Yeah, you nailed it. Yeah, stress yeast. And, yeah. Um, and you, some people taste it as grassy. Uh, first yeah. time I tasted it, I tasted it as grassy. And actually, Richard Wolf, I mentioned him earlier, uh, he was like, we were, you know, nosing a whiskey from somewhere. He said, grassy, grassy. Do you mean green apple? And I'm like, oh, that's exactly what I mean. You know, so my brain connected it a different way. Uh, mm-hmm. But at any rate, yeah. So it's, uh, but the interesting thing, I'm, I think, is that, so we, now we have this process where, you know, Jerry can be in the still house, Jerry the distiller, and he doesn't have to sit there and wait all morning for the cut. He knows, okay, it's going to take about, once we start collecting liquid, maybe, I don't know, I'll make up a 90 minutes later, I start paying attention. And we also have a digital system where he can actually have it like on his phone. He can be back in the warehouse doing something else and he can check readings on the phone. And when he sees the temperature and the proof at certain ranges, he can say, okay, now it's time for me to go back there and pay more attention. Okay, I made the cut. Now I can go do something else for three, four hours. You know, so it's kind of a nice to have those numbers to, that way he's not sitting there all day. We're paying someone to sit there and look at a still. Uh, that's that's fair, and it, I like that too because it, it. I didn't uh, meet Jerry while I was there. I think it was over. I mean, it was over a weekend, so there wouldn't have been active um, distillation going on. But I do like when there's kind of a mix of the new technology, but also the hand touch, hundred percent on there. Yeah. Um. Uh, next thing I wanted to ask, what was it? It was. <clears throat> So with the uh, the still that's now in place. So right now, so for now, the the old still is a um, showpiece. Show yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you do have a new still in there. That's um, you got the pot, a shorter column, I think five six plate. Uh, five six. A, a five plate, two templates. Yep. Five plates, template, um, and then there's. I have a picture of this as well. Um, that there's also two more higher taller column stills for those, those are the two tens yeah right the two tens for uh you know different type of spirit but for for the single malt you're using the pot and the uh first column the five right. plate yep we did some testing on that some a b analysis and we liked the product going through the pot and the four plate better than just the pot in for this system right um which uh, which co- still company did you use for that? It's uh, they no longer exists, unfortunately. Orson oh. is still out of Idaho. <clears throat> I, as far as we know, we got if not the last, then one of the last stills before they went out of business. Which is uh, they uh, nice people. Um, it's it's it was a very competitive price they offered. I think that uh, just things happen in a small business, and they you know and they and they went under. But um, you know, it's, it's a good quality still. It's a 300 gallon, uh, you know, copper pot still with the, with the attachments, like you mentioned, the, the five, uh, four plate or five plate and the two 10 plate columns. Um, and maybe it's, yeah, it's a four or five, I forget, but yeah. Um, but yeah, it's great. So we could do anything on there really. Um, but we, the only other thing besides whiskey that we produce on that still is a little bit of vodka. Uh, we're not really, we're not a vodka company at all. We use it very sparingly um so it's a very much a small 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 part of our business by design but we will run the uh, the only time we use those two template columns is when we can still run gotcha yeah it was uh arch kind of pointed to the two columns he's like yeah we, we don't really use those because it's really the right half of the 
of the stillness. Yeah, the, yeah, the whiskey only goes yeah. through the, the, the pot, which is the, you know, the heat source in our system. And then, uh, yeah, and the small plate. It's, uh, and then it's interesting. So what we do out here is that's how we do it out here in Maryland. And one thing I, I forgot to mention is a big part of our story, as we moved from the West Coast to Baltimore, you know, as you said, we were already here in Baltimore. We always envisioned the company being here. So we bought Golden, the entirety of it, with the exception of the barrels of whiskey, those went you know, intermodal. Um, but everything else, the production stuff, packed into a 26 foot U haul. Uh, I 100% know it sounds crazy, but it did. I drove it across country. And um, so we had this 25,000 square foot facility that you've been in. And we, this place we had identified, we had a short term lease uh, or temporary lease or something like that. But it had a long, anyway, it was a nightmare to get this lease finalized. And eventually the owner uh, decided, you know what? I just want to sell the place. So he sold it when we were, we had already, in, we had signed the lease he had sent us. He never countersigned and then put the building for sale. So we were like, holy smokes. This is all, it took about two years to finally get producing in this building. So that is to lead into, we didn't anticipate that delay. We had this whiskey from uh, Golden Distillery that we had already started the process of packaging it with a third party and getting ready to sell it. So we had this depletions set up with this product but all of a sudden, we didn't have a way to make any more. Like, well, that's a bad thing to do is sell all your whiskey and then nothing, nothing, you, know, you can't do that. So we were like, holy smokes. We always knew that we were going to work with a production. Well, we always anticipated that we would work with a production partner. But we always figured we would crank as hard as we could on the little still. And then once we got a new still, crank as hard as we could on that. And then eventually hit a point where, yeah, we need to work with a partner to make more. It forced our hand that we had to start actually doing contract distilling before we ever produced a drop in Maryland because it was our only, we had no other choice. And it was something that was frustrating, but it ended up being one of the best things that ever happened to us because we were introduced to Middle West Spirits out in Columbus, Ohio. And Middle West, it's a great company, great people. They have a, you know, a, they just installed a, you know, 6,000 gallon fermenters, 48 inch Vendome copper, uh, copper uh, column stills and pot stills and everything. And they just really invested a lot in this new system. I mean, world-class system. And what, um, with their brands themselves, they didn't need that capacity yet. So they were looking for a select small number of third parties to come make whiskey. And what they allowed us to do, uh, which no one else at the time would, was it wasn't like it was like a sushi menu where it's like, oh, you want to make whiskey? Here's, you know, Nashville, A, B, and C. Which one do you want? They let us... We sent them what we did with Bob and Jim and said, hey, guys, here's what we want to do. You know, they gave us some guidance on how to make it better and more efficient. But, they, you know, this is the grain, this is the yeast, all these things. And they said, sure, we'll do it. And, um, you know, a lot of distillers don't want somebody else's yeast in their building because yeast can propagate. And it, can, it can show it's, you know, it, our yeast and their mash bill isn't meant to go together. Their yeast and our mash bill isn't meant to go together. But they were very comfortable in their procedures and cleanliness and all these things that they said, sure, you can use your yeast and they let us go out there and be as involved as we want. So the first few runs, Arch and I were out there, you know, do everything they would let us do. We were doing, we were shoveling grain. We were just on the other, they would never give us the keys on our own. I mean, it was their baby, but they, we were extremely hands-on and we got very comfortable with, okay, these guys are, are doing it the way we want. Uh, Jerry, our distiller still goes out there every run, but instead of going out there the whole time, he might be there for two, three days just to kind of, you know, keep an eye on things, make sure everything's kind of going the way we want. But, uh, they're fantastic. So all that is to say, when Bob and Jim, when Bob taught us how to make whiskey, that was more like your grandmother teaching you to make a cake. That was, 
know, here's step one, two, three, four, five at the end, ta-da, here you go. And that's just Bob's style. Bob wasn't a chemist, didn't want to be, he was 70 something. Like he wasn't there to, he was there to make whiskey he liked and he, and, he, and he knew how to do that. And that was about as far as he wanted to take it. So the guys in the middle West are chemists and engineers and experienced distillers. And those guys were able to give us like the master's level course. And we've actually, what we dialed in at middle West in those first couple of years when we were distilling there before we actually got this place open is exactly the flavor profile we try to approximate here in Maryland. We like it so much. Um, it's not exactly the same. We want it to be a little bit different for a couple of reasons, but um, at any rate, but the important thing there is it, 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 the fact that we were forced to go do this kind of semi-contract, semi-gypsy distilling, if you will, ended up being a tremendous benefit to the company because we learned so much from those guys. And uh, I think that put us even further ahead of the curve as far as experience. Um, and before I close that out, one thing I've noticed that under the definition of American single malt, or as it's proposed, whiskey can only come from one distillery, but it could be a single malt. So for us, we don't marry barrels or blend together barrels from Ohio and Baltimore. They, they stay separate um, to meet the, the requirements of that. So I know so someone listening is probably thinking, how can you call it a single malt if it comes from two distilleries? Uh, what's distilled in Ohio is one thing. What's distilled in Maryland is another. Those two things don't make it. And... Uh... So this opens up a, a whole can of worms because one of my questions was going to be on, on all three of the barrels that I have, bottles that I have rather, um, they do say distilled in Ohio. And I, I didn't catch that at first. And I didn't catch that when I was down at the distillery and I looked at it, I was like, that's odd. I didn't remember um, hearing any of that on, on the tour. And I was, and then I started thinking who in Ohio would have had the capacity because it's not, there's not that many distilleries in, in Ohio still. Um, and so I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. yeah. Um, as it happens, Middle West was one of my favorite distilleries in that region. And Ryan Lang is going to be uh, the guest, I think, two episodes prior to yours. Oh, no. I spoke hey, to him Lang, last week. <laughs> so uh, quite a coincidence that I did not plan, did not see coming at all. Um so he's I was a, trying to hold back my excitement as you oh, said no. that. I was like, holy shit. <laughs> he's, a, he's a great guy. Um, we can't say the world of those guys. They've been very good to us. And um, yeah. And then they make great. They just won uh, their the Ascot Awards from Fred Minnick. If you're uh, familiar that they, they took, uh, we took Best American Single Mall. They took, uh, was it a single barrel? Or it was something that probably like arrived on something big. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's very well earned. I think they just do really, really good work. Yeah, there. I was open, Brian. I said, "Look, the first barrel I had of yours was uh, of theirs. I should say was a uh, single barrel of the Michaelone Reserve. I was also the first person, apparently, to say Michaelone, not Michaelone. Uh, <laughs> telling you, listen to podcasts, listen to audio, video, visual mediums. Get the pronunciations right. <laughs> it, it is. It's. It is. It's, it's, it's like grandfather on his mother's side's last name or something. That's where that came from. Anyway. Yeah. 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 But he said every single interviewer says Michaelone. I'm like, nope. No, it's Michael, but uh, so it was a single baller barrel of that. But overall, my favorite spirit of theirs is the pumpernickel rye. Yeah. Um, it's just it's it's very unique, and I like unique things, um, unique things that taste good, but also unique things. <laughs> so, I mean, that's fascinating. That just again, I didn't know that I didn't know that coming into this uh interview that that was in where in Ohio, yeah, the distillation yeah, yeah, yeah. is done. We, we usually mention it on the tours too, and sometimes it just you know, it's if you do the tour the same way every time, like I'll go bananas. So I just kind of like talk, you know? And so sometimes I'm 
like tonight, like I didn't mention it till an hour in just because it didn't occur to me, but it's like, Oh yeah, this is a big part of our story. You know? So That's they, uh, it's, it's been a, uh, yeah, they've been great. And we'll always work with them. I mean, they, we can produce 900 gallons, 900 proof gallons per uh, shift essentially out there. We can do 30 per day if we're lucky out here. So out here in Maryland, we do uh, anything that's going to ultimately be bottled in bonds uh, and are peated. Uh, so basically, I don't say niche things, but things that 30 gallons a day can support. Uh, and then the real backbone of, of what we do, uh, it will likely continue to be Middle West. It's just the fact that with this relationship we built, the fact that they've let us use, you know, really be intensely, you know, we're not buying somebody else's stuff. We're making our stuff with them, which for us is a big difference. And uh, sure. yeah, yeah, we're going to keep doing it. No, I, I agree. That's a, that's a, a huge difference. You're, it's not sourcing, which I also don't have a problem with sourcing, but this isn't sure. sourcing. It's a different it's, animal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, your recipes, their kitchen. That's, that's how I've been taught to look at it. Yeah. The, so I know we're, I know we're jumping around, um, which is great because there's, there's a lot in here that I'm, I'm learning. I'm, uh, experiencing. So this is great. The next thing I wanted to ask was about the, the barrels themselves. So you said you, you've, you know, phased out the originally 10 gallon to, um, 30 and then now more towards the 53 gallon, um, almost exclusively, uh, being in, uh, in your warehouse in, you know, the Baltimore facility, uh, I saw that you had a mix of both palletized, mm-hmm. uh, mostly palletized, I would say, and then a row or two of uh, racked spirits as well. So um, for which purposes would you use one or the other? Good question. It's actually, honestly, it's um, operational expediency is, is, the, is the honest answer. Um, now, our understanding, because we've th- you know, thought about this, and, and I should talk to Ryan Lang about this, actually, is that... Well, first of all, operationally, pallets just are so much easier. You, you need to get something, you can move them around a lot easier. The, the, the only difference, as we understand it, um, is uh, between on their side or on their end, is when they're on their end, if they're stacked very, very tightly, you can limit the amount of airflow that gets through that you know, row, if you will. Um, and airflow around the barrel is good just for encouraging, you know, all the things, you know, as the temperature changes, more airflow means you're going to, that, you know, that, that heat transfer is going to happen a little more rapidly when the seasons change that encourages the, you know, expanding contraction, opening of pores, closing of pores. Um, yeah, I would think it probably encourages the oxidation as, as well. Um, but we found no discernible difference between the two that we could detect yet. Um, but we're only eight years into this, right? So for us, it's really uh, the pallets are operationally much more, uh, just it's better for us and then we happen to have a bunch of racks that we'll use for different reasons um i mean sometimes it's just nice to have some on racks because it looks nice um but yeah i wish i had a more more scientific answer for you but um it, it's really it's mostly operational expediency no it's totally fine if that's if that's the answer that's the answer that's right? yeah that's right <laughs> i've visited you guys i've visited uh ones as large as as heaven hill we've got you know the 30 rick houses or whatever they're nine feet tall and um the reason i mentioned them specifically is because i had a you know i'm heaven hill select stock i'm sorry say again uh heaven hill select stock i have not had it yes yeah 
so um yeah very very small releases experimental for the most part um for people who are down there right now it's actually the fourth barrel available in the bottle your own experience which is mind-blowing for me it's probably gone already but um the reason I mentioned is because I had a Heaven Hill Select stock about a year ago now that was effectively the mellow corn recipe and mellow corn whiskey mm-hmm. aged for 17 years and then aged another two and a half years in cognac barrels. But the entirety of its aging process, it was aged on its side, um, outside of their ricks, just on its side on the sixth floor of an unidentified warehouse. Um, they said it's the sixth floor of a seven story warehouse. I believe they did say that, but they didn't say which one it was, but always on its side. And, um, you know, I was curious because I'm like, this is a company, they have plenty of money. They've got plenty of space in the rick houses. Like, why would you do it? Why would you do that? Um, especially for what was one cask too, uh, for 17 plus years. And uh, I asked, I got to ask Bernie Lovers when he came on the podcast and he said, you know, I don't know about that barrel specifically, but it's probably because it was a 60 gallon barrel and we had 53 gallon barrel ricks. <laughs> and um, it makes all the sense in the world when, when it's said. Yep. <laughs> yep. And it's just, you know, you think it's going to be this, oh, Parker wanted to experiment with something because it would have been when Parker was, Parker yeah, yeah, was still yeah, the head yeah. stiller. <laughs> It's like you wanted to experiment with something, you wanted to really do something different, but it's like, no, it just didn't fit in the ricks. So they had to put it on its side. I, I, sometimes those answers are more fun too. It's just like, oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Yeah. So to your point about operational expediency, like yeah. that, you know, it happens at every facility. It seems like there's going to be a couple barrels that just don't fit. And especially when you're using either a different size barrel or um, with what you guys are doing with the finishing yeah. or the double oaking, uh, using wine barrels that are very often different sizes they're not 53 gallon yeah, barrels 59 is common we have, yep. the, we have an armagnac barrel it's 100 uh it's right. 100 a port yeah. pipe can be what 600 liters or something it's some, yeah agreed yeah so it's you know, huge. huge yeah yeah big enough for for someone not as tall as i am or, or you are to walk into basically yeah um and so yeah I, sometimes it's just operational efficiency and if that works that works um, let's see the, so to, to, to touch on each of the products briefly, mm-hmm. cause, um, I know you're being generous with your time. I don't want to take up your entire evening, but, uh, with the American single malt and the cast strength single malts. So for those two products, um, about, I think. Archid, you're getting close to, if not exceeding about three to four years at this point in terms of age and in the batches, correct? Right, yeah, right now, everything in the bottle, unless you find something out in the store that's been there dusty or something, right. uh, everything in the bottle should be at least four years old uh, right now, um, something in 30-gallon barrels. And then uh, our oldest 53s are hitting six years old next month. And... Uh, well, I'll, I'll let you continue with where you were going with that. But that's going to lead into probably what, kind of where we're going from here. No, yeah, that's basically it. It was, it was just to, to clarify, you know, uh, what the ages were at this point. Yeah. Um, I'm very clear that age doesn't necessarily mean anything, but for some people it really does. So if, if there's a case where 
they can say, look, this stuff is also four years old. Besides being delicious, it is also four plus years old. So, you know, yeah. So that'll you, get yeah, another yeah. few people to take a look at it. Yeah, uh, agreed. The age statement um, or lack, well, obviously it's lack of age statement. So once you hit four years old, as you know, um, you're not required to put an age statement on there. Whereas under four years old, although some brands don't do it, uh, but you're supposed to put aged three years, two years, one year. We've, we've always been very adamant about, so, you know, the youngest drop, you know, as it should be, is, is the label, uh, is on the label. So, yeah, but we're, uh, we're at four years plus, and actually our, our, what we're kind of referring to internally as, uh, you know, ASM, American Signal, ASM 2.0 for us is what's going to be coming out of the 53s. And um, we're working with a blender, uh, a wonderful project team called the Spirits Group down in Louisville. Um, and our friends, uh, Monica Wolf, uh, who runs, you know, she and her business partner, Ashley Barnes, uh, run the business. And Ashley's uh, background is quality control at Four Roses for, for quite a while. And not in addition to being just fantastic people, um, they're very smart, very talented. And I mean, Monica's got a good palate, Ashley's palate food. So we're working with them to figure out kind of what that flirt, forever flavor profile is going to be. And we're very close to that. So to the point about the age, Ashley actually loves the idea of incorporating some of our uh, three-year-old barrels in it. And we told her like, it's very important for us to have no age statement on there because if people see a three, it can be the greatest thing in the world, but a lot of people will start to, they'll make you know assumptions about it before they try it. So, you know, we've asked her like, hey, listen, whatever we do, we'd like the youngest to be four. And it's gonna be some, a, a, some sort of blend of four and six-year-old probably. It's kind of our forever profile. There's certain notes at four years old that we love and certain notes at six-year-old that Ashley could talk to that better at this point. But at any rate, um, the no age statement is important to us because again, it, it, it does, you know, is age everything? No, but it, it is an important factor. Um, and, uh, but one of the things that, it, one of the reasons that we generally um, find that our earliest adopters are bourbon and rye drinkers more so than single malt scotch drinkers is that, and I'm speaking in very general terms, but on average, if you were to aggregate all the bourbon and rye drinkers, all the scotch drinkers, on average, the we find the American style drinkers to be more promiscuous, more willing to try something new. Um, you know, while age statements important, a lot of them understand it's not everything. Whereas on average, on the Scotch side, you find more people who, if it's not 12 years old, I don't want it. Uh, this, that, or the other, and that's fine. It's, 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 that's everybody has his or her own opinion, and we respect that. Um, but we found that Scotch drinkers, in general, if you don't tell them the age. They respond and like, oh, this, how old is this? And you're like, four years. And they're kind of like, oh, I didn't mean to say I liked it. <laughs> Whereas uh, the average bourbon drinker uh, is a, a little less sensitive to that. But, man, um, where, where do we start on this? The, uh, if you can get me back on course, I forget exactly where I started talking on this. It was really just about the, the single mall in, in general. Um, but I, I just want to add, you're also just up against the, you're, you're, Sorry, I just finished watching Stranger Things. You're running up the hill of against the fact that you're an American single malt as opposed to a bourbon or a rye. So you've already got the challenge of introducing yep. someone to a new category, let alone having to do with the age statements and all of that. So um, it is, it's a big challenge. Yeah. Yeah, you, yeah. You know, and we had, I had, a, I had a full conversation on Thursday, we had a board meeting on Thursday. Um, and one of the big discussions was like, you know, how do you manage that? Like, is it, you know, uh, you know, if, do you, like right now the category is growing, it's getting better every year. Um, 
but we can't wait for the category. You know, we have to be part of the, you know, as, as our peers are, you know, Balcones of the world, the Westlands, the Westwards, the Virginia Distilling Companies, guys that are out there and, and many others that are doing really good things in American single malt. You know, we are, and we are right alongside them trying to advance the category, but uh, we also are all aware of the fact that, you know, if, if a thousand people walk into Bob's Liquors on Saturday, I'm lucky if one of them walks in because he's fresh out of American single malt. You know, the consumer's there because he or she's out of beer, wine, truly bourbon, scotch, whatever, something besides American single malt. So, you know, we're already dealing with a consumer who's showing up, not there to buy our category, let alone our, our, our brand. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a big challenge, but the double, the other side of that from a business perspective is one of the big advantages that we have is that unlike starting a bourbon brand where if we were doing bourbon or rye or, you know, starting up a distillery in Scotland, we're dealing with a, just a extremely entrenched, uh, category and in good ways. Like, and, and they're, they're very high barriers to entry. Like scotch is very strictly defined. Bourbon is very strictly defined. And for good reason, if I'm a bourbon maker or a scotch maker, single malt scotch maker, I don't want some knucklehead to come in and do something weird, call it single malt scotch. Like you want to have it defined very rigidly so that way you keep the categories integrity. The beauty of American single malt is we're new. Like we, we want to have integrity, but we also want to have it open for new entrants. Like more entrants is better for us. Um, both just that's what we like to operate and also as a business. So um, yeah, that is a big challenge. And it's, but the, you know, the, where I was going with that is if you wanted to start a bourbon brand tomorrow, it's hard to do these days, but you can find bourbon barrels on the open market and blah, 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 you know, package it and call it, you know, David's whiskey or whatever. And it's doable. So um, the bigger guys can do that all the time. No one, knock on wood, to my knowledge, can do, can, we can't be, the, the big boys can't leapfrog ahead of us uh, because the, as small as we are, we probably have one of the top in size, three or four American single malt stocks that exist, and we're small. So, you know, Westland's got more than us. Stranahan's has more than us. You know, Virginia still Company, but like, but they're not going to sell it. They want, they want to, they want to. I mean, they don't want to sell it to somebody else. They want to grow their brand. So it's not like you know, Heaven Hill can decide next year. I want to have a five-year-old American single malt. I'm going to go buy barrels. Like, where are they going to get them? So um, that's one of the big advantages. To, right now, it's harder. Like, if we were selling bourbon. You know, our sales are great. We're growing 50% top line a year. We're very lucky and very pleased. But if we're selling bourbon, we'd be selling more because the consumer knows what a bourbon is. They see American single malt and that person looks at that label and nine out of 10 people have zero idea what they're going to taste. Because right. with a bourbon, it might be a bad bourbon, but at least they know kind of what to expect. So that's a challenge, but it, it comes to the territory. And um, I think in the long run, guys like us and the peers that I mentioned are in a very, very good position. And uh, so the, speaking of a couple of the ones you mentioned, actually the episode before this one, I believe is going to be Lost Lantern. So they've done a bunch of single barrels and sure. independent bottlings from those places. Um, I hope they will do one from you guys as well. Uh, but the other thing I want to circle back to was some, you know, we've had a couple of American single malt producers uh, on, on here. Uh, and we also, I've also gotten to talk to Chris Wonger from Discus, um, you know, Colin Keegan from Santa Fe. I actually listened to your episode yeah. with Colin. I, I think the world of him. Right. I mean, he's, yeah. uh, he's become one of the leaders in, in the ASM uh, sphere. And great whiskey too. And great whiskey. Yeah. I've got your, your bottles and his bottles are neck and 
they're literally next to each other and touching each other. It's good company. Um, so, I appreciate it. Um, when I, you know, I talked to both of them maybe two months ago or so. It's been a, it's been a little while now. And um, particularly when I was talking to both of them, it came, the topic came up, which you mentioned earlier, that there is no official category yet from the TTB. That being said, um, the request to have one in has been in for about six years now. Uh, I think going on seven, if my math is correct. And at least at the time when I spoke to Chris and then to Colin, the expectation was that finally, after many, many years, finally, there was going to be some movement on that front in what they thought was the next couple of weeks. Now, having been a couple months later um, and just knowing how the federal government works, I kind of expected it was going to be a little longer still. Yeah. But, uh, you know, to your knowledge, has there been any more movement? Uh, to my knowledge, no. Uh, I will say that guys like Colin and some of the other members, like Colin was a founding member of the um, American Single Malt uh, Commission, amongst other facilities that they, they were frankly around before we were. Um, so Colin, I'm sure, knows more than I do. But, uh, yeah, to my knowledge, I think it's it's hurry up and wait, right? It's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's going to happen when it happens. Actually, it's funny where that's affecting us. I mean, it's not affecting the way we operate. We're going to do what we're going to do. Um, you know, we're on the same page. We're part of the commission. We're fully on board with what everybody's doing. But we're, the only thing that affects us is that a lot of writers on the PR side, a lot of writers have been approached already about, hey, this category is going to be a thing, you know, and they've written about it. And now all the, a lot of the writers are like, call me when it's official, man. You know, like, and so that's, that's actually where it's really affecting us is PR. Um, it's not affecting that we make whiskey because we're doing, we're doing it within the standards that the you know, community of distillers uh, has defined. And we agree with that hundred percent. So yeah, for us, it's just like, a, Hey, I'll, I'll, it'll happen eventually. I'm not going to hold my breath, but uh, I want it to happen. So that way we all get a little more rest when it becomes official. Sure. I mean, I'm, believe me, I'm rooting for you guys too. I, I want it to be official. I want you to have the, even if it doesn't change anything from how, like you said, how you're making the whiskey, it's, you know, no one that I've talked to is going to change the way they're making their single malt because of this regulation. It's just about being able to say this is an official category of American whiskey that follows all, you know, these enumerated things that the the ASM community has already defined or self-defined as their regulations. But yeah, it would just help so much in for you, as you said, for PR to have that going forward, then you can any number of writers, myself included at that point, is going to be like, hey, it's legal. Talk to me. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. But you're also going to want to say, I almost think of it how, not so much in the Scotch Whiskey Association, because that's super intertwined with the with the legislature there. So um, it's it's not quite extra legal, but it's also like, if you don't conform to the SWA, even if you're not in Scotland, like you're getting a cease and desist letter. Uh, Virginia um, Stone Company got one exactly. that with their Highland yep. Mall. Man, I felt bad yep. for those guys. Like, come on. Uh, yeah, they're a little. I've I've mentioned this before too, where there's just like other places have Highlands. Like literally every every other place has Highlands. I'm, I am I am sitting in Highland Town, Baltimore, and the next neighborhood was called Baltimore Highlands. Like, right. It's not monopoly like, on that. <laughs> yeah, Manhattan's got Highlands. I'm higher than the land that I can see over there so technically i'm on a highland like calm yourself a little bit but you know they're they are what they are um but so i I was thinking of a good comparison 
um, following those conversations and going to this one, I think the closest one I could think of outside of the U.S. is the um, Japanese whiskey regulations that went into effect last April. So April yeah, of 21. Big. Yeah, that was big. Um, now, granted, that's it's very much written by and for Centauri. <laughs> Let's be honest about this. Yeah. But at the same time, um, it did... It, to an extent, the purpose was the same to, to define something that the government was not defining um, and define it on an industry level so that the industry understood what the, where the lines were sure. and what, what they could call Japanese whiskey, what they couldn't call Japanese whiskey. Um, I know a lot of Japanese whiskey companies, including a couple that I talked to at that time, their, their product portfolios got um, bifurcated between you know, things that fit and things that didn't. And that's how you knew that it was Suntory led because they were the only company that had everything fit in there. Even Nika yeah. didn't have anything fit, everything fit in there. I, I hadn't um, looked at it in terms, but that, that it's interesting. I, I believe it. Yeah. Um, like Nika from the barrel is known to be mostly Ben Nevis um, distillate. So it doesn't qualify. Um, teaspooning doesn't qualify as a, as a Japanese whiskey there. It has to be like age there, distill there to a certain amount the grain can come from anywhere because they just don't have the grain supply or the the agricultural infrastructure around barley to maintain what they want to do so that has to be imported but century really wants to put that in so so anyway that is all to say that um i very much see the american side of things going from that direction where the industry is self-defining and then they're trying to force the government to make that official make it legal that these are the regulations in place. And as such, because it's industry led, you guys won't have to change anything. Or if you'd have to change anything, it'll be minimal. It won't be, you know, core tenants of your production Agreed. that will have to change. Agreed. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, I was, I was almost against it at first from sitting there. Like my initial reaction was, well, if the government's kind of let us what we want, why invite it? And then Arch, you know, was like, Hey man, like, but they're going to do it eventually, and they're going to do it in a jacked-up way. If we don't, if we as a group don't push it, and that that right. that resonated with me, I, I I changed my mind on that. Like, yeah, I agree. Like, if we don't do anything, somebody somewhere is going to just do something weird, and then we're all screwed. So, I might as well proactively you know, do it. Absolutely, and I do also want to make one other comparison, which is to um, Empire Rye. So, another industry-led designation that became a state designation in new york um and the reason i want to make the comparison there is that uh, asm's american single malt uh, whiskey commission and everyone involved including adi including discus and um ac acsa acsa yeah um it's like too many acronyms i was losing <laughs> i'm a military guy i live in that world so i can say all the fair fair um you know you've all coalesced behind one idea and it's very much to be inclusive rather than exclusive Agreed. Mm-hmm. uh empire ride kind of was the opposite okay and and i say that knowing having interviewed and uh, being what i consider friends with some of the people who pushed the empire ride regulations but it was done to very much highlight new york grains new york terroir which is great to an extent but it also became exclusive because it required certain things that some distilleries just couldn't do to fit their profile. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, there's a dividing line there, but 
in comparison, single malt seems to be very inclusive as a community and looking to just, you know, codify something without cutting people out in the process. 100% agree. And I think it's a combination of personalities and a shared business sense personalities that, you know, for sitting here now, if I wanted to say, okay, ASM has got to be at least four years old. Well, easy for me to say all of our ASM, you know, we, we can, we can fulfill that. Um, but if, five years ago, we could, you know, so like, well, why should I get that benefit? Not the next guy is, is part of it. It's just, you know, kind of karma. And then um, the, uh, but it's also, it, it, yeah, we, it, more entrance at this point is a good thing for us. So it just makes it on both sides. It makes sense. Uh, and, uh, but I agree. We all play well together. You know, we, we do things um, like Boulder spirits that, you know, those guys are great. They've done events with us out in Colorado yeah, we're going to invite them out to event. We do just distillery events here where we invite other distillers to old lines. We call it a whiskey roundup. And we, no cost to the distillery. Hey, just give us some bottles to pour, come in, send somebody who knows the whiskey, whether it's the owner or sales rep, whatever you want. And hey, come have an event here and have our consumers taste your stuff. And uh, you know, we don't view it as a loss. We don't view it as like, oh no, they're going to now know about Boulder Spirits. No, it's like, hey, good, Boulder Spirits does good stuff. Like we want you to know about that. Uh, is it, we don't look at it as a zero sum game, I think, in this industry, in this category, I guess is what I'm saying. Absolutely. All right. I know we have, we've run through a lot tonight and um, there <laughs> I are talk, still I talk a little much sometimes. So no, first of all, so do I. And second of all, that's absolutely fine. I, I personally enjoy when these go longer. Um, I just want to make sure, you know, to give uh, a little bit of time for some of the other products that you guys have had. So, um, the first one I want to mention is, so I have the Double Oak Series um, Sauterne cask. Yeah. Um, and so these are limited edition uh, bottlings, you know, a couple of barrels of each. Typically, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, typically at this point, if we're trying something new, it'll typically be at max four barrels, very small. Right. So, you know, coming out uh, every couple of months with a new uh, finish or a new element to it um i know that, as you said i'm going to try the cognac one and the sherry is that the other one uh well we had the uh, well we have cognac and armagnac i think is what we had uh oh, discussed. Right, right. yeah sherry yeah. if we have any sherry lying around i'll certainly send you some but um yeah it's uh those are the ones that were kind of they were released as part of our development program side by side they're gonna get released in the fall side by side again uh, awesome. actually on that topic here uh i don't know for those of you who are listening on spotify you won't be able to see this but this is a, uh, you probably saw this when you hear the development program, it's a little 200 ml bottle. And on the back, it's got all this, you know, whiskey nerd information on you know, exactly what's in that. And also there's a uh, QR code that we have on there. So that way we just started this where uh, people that they choose can scan that code and give us feedback on what they think. Uh, so it's really a good way for us to, you know, so the development program is the idea is taking, you know, we want to experiment as a distillery. We also don't want to, we don't want to just throw stuff out there just to try and say, hey, if it sticks, we want to actually have some sort of indication if it's going to be well-received or not. Um, so the development program allows us to dip our toe in with a limited release to the distillery. Uh, people can give feedback. You know, it helps us know if this is going to have legs or not. Um, and eventually, if it does, we do the full release like you saw with the Sauterne and, and things like that. So, I mean, I, I love that. I am 100% in favor of that, more than 100% in favor of that. Uh, you know, opening yourselves to not only feedback, but criticism, 100%. positive, negative is, is risky as hell. 
for any distillery. It really is. Uh, and especially for, I say, especially for a younger distillery, I know you guys have been around close to a decade now, but still, you know, you're, I'd still call you guys young as a distillery, yeah, not as a spirit, but to be that open to, uh, to feedback and also to be that transparent. I mean, even the, the Sauternes cast that I have is, is um, as you said, it's not, it's no longer the, uh, it's no longer experimental. Like you, this is what was a regular right. release. Yeah, that, yeah, that became a, a full, full limited. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But on the back, you still got the production details, like what the mash bill is. And of course you think it's, as you said, you mentioned the mash bill earlier, but to reiterate, it was the premium two row malt, 90% and then the 10% deep roast malt. Yep. Um, the, those percentages aren't here, but if you look on the on the site, you'll you'll find that out. But even just saying there are two types of malt in here. When it was bottled, the first barrel, what the entry proof was, the char, the exit proof, the time, what the second barrel was, French oak, sauternes cask, what the entry proof was there, the exit proof, um, which I did find was interesting that it dropped very slightly. It dropped one proof point. 1.2 proof points. That's been, it, that surprised me all, in all these finishes. I, the only explanation I have, not to cut you off, the only explanation I have huh? is that we get these barrels still pretty, they're, they're sealed and wet. So there'll okay. be liquid in the wood, but also but sometimes they'll have a little sloshing around in there, a liter or something like that, in a, in a 60 right. gallon barrel. And we'll usually leave it in there. And uh, that's my only, but still, let's, I, we, we have had some of our, uh, our uh, you know, port came down a couple points. I'm like, how the hell did that happen? months but at any rate yeah it's interesting i haven't figured it out yet honestly you're probably you're probably right i mean the, the simplest simplest answer is usually the right one and you're, yeah. you're probably right that it's a little bit of the um you know whatever's in there is going to be a lower proof than the whiskey itself so it, it i know it doesn't count as part of the whiskey if it's a wet entry yeah but um it'll still be like just enough, like maybe over the course of an entire cask to bring it down one proof point. Exactly. Yeah. Whatever's coming you out know, of the wood. And, exactly. Right. Yeah. Coming out of the wood and, and losing more in there. Uh, and you're going to, but it's not going to go down too much because as a wet entry, it's the wood's not dry. So it, it's yeah. uh, the wood's not going to soak up so much of that, that it's going to jump or anything like that. Agreed. Um, but so, uh, so, I, you know, I, I really wanted to, you know, you put it up with the with the um, 200 mil example, mm -hmm. and I wanted to mention it here too because I love transparency and I'm a big fan of just like no one's gonna make what what you made. You could put out a manual step by step of what you do, give people access to your stills, and they may not they're Agreed. almost surely not gonna make the exact same thing. There's no yeah, there's a, it, there's no real reason in my opinion to be too secretive. I mean, you know, yeah. is there something in here we wouldn't share? Sure. I'm sure you dig deep enough. We're probably like, eh, maybe not. But like, we're any company's going to have that. But it's it's just, uh, you know, no one's no one's out there looking to. Everybody just wants to do their own thing for the most part, and do it well. And you know, the exactly. um, but yeah, the, the transparency is big. The only thing that, uh, that we're going to do that with most of our our whiskeys, with the exception is likely going to be the flagship, just because there's just less to tell. It's like it's not finished. It's not this that. And each iteration might be a little. Maybe this one's four and five year old, maybe this one's five and six year old. So uh, that one, we're going to put a flavor wheel on the back and, you know, guys like you who are big into whiskey may not, you'll look at that, like, oh, okay, whatever. Like I'm, I'll taste what I taste. But the reason we're putting a flavor wheel on there is first of all, you know, these, these words that are currently on there, 
no one reads that. No one cares. Like this, you know, a bold story is like, who cares? Right. So, and then ideally, you know, and when we have this stuff, when we have enough to share, absolutely we'll throw it on there for the flagship. We're going to do the flavor wheel because earlier we mentioned, like I said, that people see American single mall and they're thinking one thing. We're hoping that that helps people say, Oh, okay. That's kind of not what I expected. Maybe I'll bring it home and give it a try. So. Awesome. And then uh, in addition to the cask finishings, you guys also have a rum, multiple rums. I should say. We do. Yeah, we have. So we have the, so the American single malt um, is, is really our, our, our baby. And that's what we are, you know, how we have built the company. The vodka I mentioned is a very, very small niche thing. So it's not even really worth getting into it's vodka, you know, whatever. Um, but the rum, uh, originally where that came up, uh, like I said earlier, like the kind of this, the, there's the romantic uh, answer, and then there's the real answer. That's our response, which is sometimes even more interesting. Where with the rum, it came, became a thing for us is that we knew that we would need as a distillery a, a cash flow vendor. And we, at the time, weren't looking to do vodka. We later on decided to do a little bit of it. Uh, gin, we discussed earlier, not really our thing. Um, and selling the whiskey as white whiskey was not something we wanted to do either. So when you look at it, like, well, what, what can we do here to help generate cash? Well, we put a lot of whiskey, play a lot of whiskey down and wait for it to age. And uh, one of our board members introduced us to a couple named Luis and Margaret Ayala down in uh, Texas. And their company is called uh, Rum Runner International. And with their ideas, they work with a pretty small number of clients and help guys like us develop our own blend of rums, from the age rums from the Caribbean. So they only operate in the Caribbean or maybe some tangential places that aren't, you know, like I think they do some out of uh, Costa Rica or something, but that may not be fully Caribbean per se, but um, uh, bad example. Like, but, like, know, like continental yeah. versus island kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Or like maybe, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. So we found um, Louise and Margaret helped us. First of all, they exposed us to what uh, an aged rum can be, which I didn't really know. I was blown away at how good these run. There's so many amazing aged Caribbean rums out there. Um, but a lot of Americans, and I was one of them, don't really know about that. So for us, it, it scratched a couple of itches. One, we could develop, we spent about a year developing the blend. And once we did, we could ask Louise and Margaret to import and blend it in Texas and ship it to us. So it comes to us in totes, blended to our spec. And it allowed us to have a product that we could order, get it fulfilled, sell and generate cash and keep the lights on while we laid down more and more whiskey. Uh, but we did it on our terms. We did it in a way that, okay, this is the product that, you know, a lot of Americans, a lot of it's. Others are doing it now, but not a lot of small distilleries, if any, were doing the rum that way when we started doing this, I don't think. Um, and it also, you know, we're Navy guys, rum. And we also ultimately always knew that we, the flavor profile in our, in our rum, it's not spice at all. It's barrel aged, you know, minimum seven years. And we, um, it, ultimately it has become almost like a seasoning engine for barrels where the rum, some of it comes in, gets bottled right away, but some of it gets brought in and put into our used single malt barrels for six months a year, emptied as a separate product line. And now we have a rum soaked barrel that we can put whiskey back in. So for us, those flavors really, really do well together. So it's kind of like, a, you know, conceptually, a, you know, Belvini Caribbean cask, uh, similar, different, very different flavor profile, um, but the same concept. So anyway, the rum, we viewed it, uh, quite frankly, it was like a booster engine. And we said, hey, if the rum only succeeds locally, and it fizzles out in a couple of years, as long as it accomplishes that goal of getting us cash in the first few years, it's a win. And, you know, it's just turned into this thing that's just really high quality and people love it. And, 
know, we don't really ship it outside the state. Experimentally, we do. It's not really what we focus on, but it's become a, a little cult favorite, and we're very lucky to have it. I mean, I bought about a bottle of the cast strength rum while I was down there, and I was I'm very happy with it. Yeah, aged rums and to not to throw any company under the bus, but like you know, there's a lot more to rum than um, you know, Cabin Jack and Kraken and. Um, yeah, those serve that, a purpose, and, but yeah, but the, the, yeah, they're not the end all be all. I agree. Right. The there's a whole world of age rums out there that is a massive rabbit hole to get into. One day on this podcast, we'll um, get a little more into it. I've got some reviews of rum, but I haven't found the right occasion to start posting about them. Um, I might do a rumtober after you know National Bourbon Month in September or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's a huge huge thing that we don't talk about but it's also a wild west rule wise i 100 percent agree yep to, to so, your point like yeah. ours is that we call it a seven-year-old rum or you know if the finished ones we'll call it eight because it has another year of aging that's the minimum whereas the rule if there is a rule in the caribbean is more like you can call it a 15 year if there's some 15 year old in there and the general taste and feel indicates 15 years sure 15 years so we we do the whiskey way which is a conservative way so ours is seven to 11 years old um, but yeah, to, to the wild west, there's some labels, there's some age statements slapped on those bottles that probably aren't quite, they're probably to an American consumer, a little bit confusing. Exactly. The age statements are off the, there's, uh, additions to it there, which I'm lacking the French. Yeah. yeah the yeah. back suite. I'm, I'm forgetting the French word for it. I want to say dressage. I don't think that's right. Um, but yeah, there's, there's additives you can put into it. There's different types around this room, agricole. There's things. Mm-hmm. And I was actually, I should mention though, if you're, if you are a fan of um, certain finished whiskeys in America right now that do use rum agricole and you like tequila or you like agave spirits, uh, rum agricole might be a good way to get into that. But um, I say that only because I'm, whenever I see something finished, I want to taste what it was finished in. Yeah. So they're interesting. Yeah, there's, there's like an earthy, funky kind of thing going on with those agricoles, which is exactly what yeah. they want when you make that. Yep. Yeah. Talk, talk about grassy. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so, um, I mean, we're going on almost two hours here. Um, so, I'm going to say that I just have one more question for you. Yeah, sure. Um, and um, I'll be honest. I, I want to lead into it a little bit because it's a it's a sensitive question. Um. So the question really revolves around this idea of um, using using military service as a marketing agent, mm-hmm. if you will. So, you know, my family, we haven't been in the military since World War II or Korea, I should say. So my grandfather, like two generations removed from any kind of military service. Um, so on one hand, I want to say that I don't really have a, a horse in this race. I don't really have a place to stand to say anything about this sure but i do want to kind of throw it to you with a little bit more context so you and arch are both navy guys even though retired still you know navy for life um you're you've got bravo zulu on yeah. every bottle um we're navy airmen and uh, i liked actually how you connected it didn't hit me at first the rum to mm-hmm. the navy as well sure. um but that, and even the connection to old line to the Revolutionary War and and that aspect, like there's a lot of military related things that could go into your brand. But your, but old line spirits as a brand and as a a frontispiece for the brand, 
it's not a military whiskey. Correct. You know, it's while well, you're timing on that. I'm sorry. Let me follow me. Finish. Let you finish your well, comment before I jump so, in. Sure. So, um, it's the only reason I mention it is because one, it's sensitive topic, so I got to talk to the right people about it who can. Sure. Um, but it's also that um, there are a number of distilleries out there right now, older, younger, whatever, who are putting out product. Some of whom are putting out a very solid product and happen to be using the military service as a push for it. Some of whom put out very, very young, I would argue, not ready product and using the military service and military, uh, everything that goes along with that as what they're actually selling as opposed to the whiskey in the bottle. Yes. That's the, so yeah, I, I, I love the question actually, because it's something that we have thought a lot about. Um, and so to your point, old line has some kind of Easter eggs, you know, the Bravo Zulu flags, which for those of you listening, uh, Bravo B, Zulu Z, it's a way it's Navy Marine Corps speak to say, well done. Um, you know, the, the waves, for those of you who can see, you know, behind me, the, the circle waves, uh, is designed to evoke a sense of adventure and excitement, uh, because our brand is built on the concept of bold stories, but, you know, Arch and I, our story is, is naval aviation. It's this, that, and the other. That's not your story. That's not somebody else's story. Everybody's got their own. Everybody's done something that they feel is a bold story. It's just different for each person. So what we wanted to do is take the concept of our path, which was naval aviation and military service, and build a brand around that that was approachable to anybody. That wasn't, you know, for example, looking at aircraft carrier on the bottle. It might be a little too much. Some people might resonate with it. Others don't. So... All that is to say that we've been very, very, very careful on that. And another reason is that as, as cocky as naval aviators can be, I, also there's also kind of this element of like, hey man, like act like you've been here before. Like don't, don't, don't hit it too hard. You know, we didn't do, you know, throw camouflage in the bottle, you know, nothing against guys who do, uh, but it's just not our style. I will say that we've probably taken a lighter touch than we needed to. And that's actually been the discussion of the company here is, is ways that we can, in a way that is in keeping with our personalities and values, uh, embrace that a little more, which is to say, I don't want anybody to ever see a bottle and see that it says veteran owned or whatever it might say on a you know shelf talker or whatever. I don't want people to think, oh, I feel like I should buy this because they're vets. That's the wrong sale for us. Um, what I want is, old stories that 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 whole content of our brand if we can tie in our military service a little more as to how that legitimizes our our, our bold stories brand yes we'll do it um but i don't want it to be like you should buy it we're veterans like, that's just kind of like to me that's that's not a winning strategy it's not our style you know we want people to 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 like it and if our story happens to make people feel a little more compelled to try it great but there's a very very fine line for us and um we get pushed by our, our, even our investors on our board. Like they're like, Hey, you should do more military stuff on there. And Arch and I are just like, we will, we'll get there. But like, it, it's just something that we have to feel comfortable with it because if it becomes, if it feels gimmicky or like we're, we're abusing our experience, um, that, that trips something that we don't want to trip into. No, I, I appreciate everything you just said. Really. I appreciate the full answer. I appreciate, um, the, the nuance to it. Um, I agree with everything you said. Uh, and again, coming from a, a non-military background and from, you know, I, I, I would never go to one of these other distilleries and say, Hey, like pull it back a little bit. That's not my place. And it'll just be an asshole thing to do anyway. But, um, 
it as you as you said i think that's the best way to put it in my as how i was thinking about it was just like if you're in the whiskey business or any spirit or any business for that matter it should be about the whiskey if your story enhances it great works with it fantastic but um if if you're a company where you're trying to get people to buy things because you were a veteran because of the military service there for someone who's not in the military and and hasn't been i want to support and i kind of do feel that tug of like well like should i buy this even though i don't know if it's good or not or whatever um and that's not really fair to the consumer that's not what it's about and so um you know thank you for for taking on what could have been a very sensitive question and just taking oh, it in stride. And I, I appreciate I, that. I appreciate you asking it. And um, it, uh, yeah. And you'll, you'll probably see, I mean, cause this has been a topic of discussion a lot lately here. You, you'll probably see a little more of a direct connection in the coming months and year or so with us. But again, it, you know, we, it'll be within keeping with what we feel is appropriate. And uh, so, yeah. and again, to tie back, it's, if it, if it makes people feel more connected to the brand in a good way, great. If it's that, kicking the rear end being like, you know, I mean, why are we more deserving than a person, any other person? I mean, yeah, veterans, I got more out of the military than I gave. I mean, man, like I, I'd be a hot mess if I wasn't. <laughs> so, you know, I, it's uh, I, no one owes me anything. I'll tell you that. So. No, but you, you guys have done the legwork where you've, you've built the brands without needing to lean heavily on that. So if you want to incorporate it in now, like for me, this is me speaking very personally now sure. that, yeah. um, I don't see as much of a problem with that because you've done that legwork because you built the business and the distillery without using that as a crutch. I appreciate that. And that, 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 yeah. that feels right to me as well. And I appreciate you saying that. Yeah. So on that uh, very, you know, light topic, um, I think that's a perfect time to, uh, to close down for the night. So, you know, Mark, thanks for so much for coming on. This was a, a fantastic discussion. Um, I'm really looking forward to, to trying what you guys have coming down the line with you guys in, in the future. Uh, definitely stop by whenever I'm in the Baltimore DC area. Always welcome. Um, and, uh, you know, for now, where can people find you? Uh, so, uh, so as far as like markets we're in, you know, Maryland, DC and Delaware is our home market. We're pretty widely distributed here. Uh, and then as far as other States, um, New York, New Jersey, uh, Massachusetts, Colorado, uh, is where we're at right now. As far as, uh, you know, we're still in the, in the growth phase, so you can't find us at every store in those other states. Uh, but um, if you go to, we try to focus our sales to the best extent we can where uh, we're the whiskey nerd shop. And I say that term lovingly because we are whiskey nerds too. So, uh, you know, those places, you know, and we try to identify those places where the people who really value that interaction with their person selling them the whiskey, the people who own the stores who know their stuff, that's where we want to be. So, um, anyway, yeah, so we're in those states and, um, you know, if, if people go online to our website, you can certainly see a store locator and, and things like that as well. But, uh, yeah. And, uh, it's, this has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, I really appreciate you having me on and thank you for your time. I took over two hours of your night. So thank you for, for giving me that. And, uh, and thank you for your patience and scheduling as well. You've been very, very kind. No, not a problem at all. I uh, appreciate it on all fronts. There'll also be, um, in the show notes of this episode uh links to uh, of course website all social media keep an eye definitely follow old line on social media because you'll see all the new 
when the new releases come out, when the events happen, as you said, with whether it's an old line event or whether it's an old line and another distillery event, um, they're always happening. You know, stop by when you're in Baltimore. It's really you you feel invited once you walk in the doors and it's a great feeling when you walk in a distillery and feel that. So um, with that, you know, Mark, hang on for, for just a second after we finish. Um, this has been another episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Make sure to uh, follow uh, the podcast and whiskeyinmywedding.com on all social media platforms. Uh, leave a five-star rating review. Um, subscribe to the new tiers on Patreon, including by the, uh, what am I calling it now? The Bottle Club, uh, where you get to taste what I get to taste, uh, which is something I'm hoping to just bring to people and help them open doors to new whiskeys. And with that, say good night. Cheers. Thanks, David.